Hey, Rewatchables fans, we have a new one coming on Thursday, special Thanksgiving drop. It is a very famous sports movie. Stay tuned for that. If you want to hear the whole archive of Rewatchables podcast, go to Spotify. We have 213 movies, I think at this point, all available only on Spotify. If you want to hear anything from the last 45 days, it's available everywhere. The entire library only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra, not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside LDA 21 and up. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield. When you open a savings account with Apple Card, visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card, subject to credit approval, savings available to Apple Card owners, subject to eligibility savings accounts, provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Member FDIC, terms apply. The Bill Simmons Podcast is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, as well as the Ringer Podcast Network. Hope you're checking out Plain English with Derek Thompson. Man, that thing launched with a bang. He's done three so far. Really good. Feels like that pod's been around for a year or so. Um, great job. Smart guests, smart topics, and uh, a big asset to the Ringer Podcast Library. I hope you're checking that out. Speaking of checking things out, the third film from our Music Box series is launching... 8 p.m. HBO, Thursday night, Thanksgiving, and also on HBO Max as well. It's about DMX. It is called DMX, Don't Try to Understand. It's directed by Christopher Frierson. It's really good. I don't know what to tell you. All six of these that we made, they're really good. There's no stinkers. There's, there's no runt in the litter. They're all just really good. People loved the Atlantis one last week. You're gonna love the DMX one as well. It is, uh, it's emotional. Just warning you now. Um, so I don't know, look, you might want to watch football on Thursday night and then get to it over the weekend. You might be tired of football by Thursday night. Might, might want to watch something with the whole family, but this is a really good film. We are really proud of it. We are proud of this whole series. And if you missed the first two jagged or Woodstock 99, those are on HBO max. So there you go. Coming up, Peter Schrager and I, we're going to mix things up because we've been, been a little stagnant on million dollar picks, not really getting killed, but not winning money either. So we're going to mix it up. We're just doing it on Tuesday. We're going to try to get the Thursday games in. We do million dollar picks. And then uh, Jim Miller, who's been on this podcast a few times talking about SNL and ESPN and CAA. Well, he wrote a new book about HBO. It is almost a thousand pages. It is an exhaustive oral history. It's really good. And we're going to talk about HBO. So that is the podcast for today. Million dollar picks. Jim Miller. It's all next. First, our friends from Pearl Jam.
All right, Peter Schrager is here. We are mixing it up this week. Usually we do this on a Thursday. We could have taped it ahead. We could have taped it Wednesday. We could have... No, we're doing it Tuesday. It's 11 o'clock Pacific time. Coming right off the Monday game. Jason Garrett just got fired. Stuff's happening. Lines are moving. We're just going. We've been... uh, I don't want to say we've been in a slump, but we just can't get momentum. Last week, we lost... We lost sixteen thousand dollars last week. That's it. That's, we are that's nothing. We gambled a million. We lost sixteen thousand. <laughs> we're up ninety eight thousand dollars for the year. It just feels like we're on a hamster wheel. So we're opening up this week in a variety of ways. First of all, the Bills let us down last week. The Bills are playing on Thursday. There are three Thursday games. Bears Lions with rumors of Matt Nagy's demise circling over that. Bears are favored by three and a half in Detroit. Then you have Dallas. Seven and a half point favorites at home against Vegas. Hard to believe Vegas can get their shit together in three days with the kind of season they're having. And then Buffalo, a line that started at four when I woke up this morning and is now at five and a half at New Orleans on Thursday night going head to head against the DMX documentary on HBO, which I guarantee would be more entertaining. But um, my first question, because I really want to put the bills in a parlay. Do you trust the bills to bounce back this week? Because I feel like I do. I read a great piece on the in the Athletic today by Shield Capadia about how this Buffalo thing isn't nearly as dire as it seems, and a lot of it just comes down to um, they got their ass kicked against the Colts, obviously. But hey, they're down ten, they're down thirteen early. They're playing catch up. They've had some some untimely interceptions and fumbles, and really bad luck on fourth down. And he was saying if they just shift a couple of those things, all of a sudden this doesn't look like a disaster. I was thinking, look, they play the Pats in a week. This is a nice comeback game. Doesn't seem like Kamara is going to play. Simeon looked terrible. And maybe they get back on the horse this week on a Thursday night in New Orleans. What say you, Peter Schrager? Under McDermott, historically, they've played well in these type of primetime games where it's like, all right, questions, whether the Bills are for real. And I remember a couple of years ago, they went into Pittsburgh and Josh Allen beat the Steelers with the terrible towels waving. And it was like, okay. And then Thanksgiving that year, it was like, all right, they're going against the Cowboys in Dallas. And are the Josh Allen led bills for real? And they blew out the Cowboys. And last year, week after week after week in a big spot, Allen delivered. He let us down against the Jaguars this season. He's let us down against the Colts this season. Going into New Orleans will not be easy. The Saints, they do play really well there on Thanksgiving. Like last year, they they always have success on Thanksgiving. But gosh, I'm watching the Philadelphia Eagles run for 270 yards all over them last week. The Saints have nothing on offense going for them, right? No Kamara. I like the Bills in this one. I feel like if they're anything, if they're going to be anything, they have to win this game. And this is like kitchen sink type deal. We just need them to win. Dallas against the Raiders is seven and a half, which can be teased or parlays. And Dallas is another one coming off kind of an ugly game against the Chiefs. They ran out of receivers. We don't know if C.D. Lamb's going to play. Cooper misses the last two games because he's not vaccinated, basically. It seems like they're going to have him back for Thursday. Dak had an uncharacteristic, just wasn't that good. Didn't look great. Um, And you could make the case, hey, be careful of this. Be careful of Vegas as a live dog. But I don't like what I've seen from Vegas. Have you? What what, what am I missing? Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Mariota this week. We we put money on the on the Bengals last week, and it was like sixteen thirteen, and you and I were texting, and it's like I don't know, and then 
Bengals put it on them and they won 32 to 13. I think they just kind of let it rip. It felt like that was the Raiders season, didn't it? And two yeah. years ago, they were six and three at one point and fell apart, missed the playoffs. Last year, they were six and four at one point, fell apart, missed the playoffs. This year, there's obvious reasons. And you and I mentioned it two weeks ago that lost in the in the absolute tragedy of the Henry Ruggs thing is a football piece to it where he was a 12th overall pick and is maybe the fastest player in the NFL and you take him out of your offense too and they have not been able to replace that. They looked lifeless in the second half on Sunday. They didn't look like they had spirit and that was at home. I, I don't see it just clicking all of a sudden. That defensive pass rush, which was so good with Crosby and Ngakwe, kind of went away uh, in the second half against that Bengals team. And then you mentioned Carr. We were talking Carr MVP as recent as early November after they had those gutsy wins in the wake of the Gruden stuff. But gosh, this feels like he just does not get it done when they need him to. And I wouldn't be shocked if he saw some Marcus Mariota. He's healthy now, and it feels like it might be time to to mix things up for for Las Vegas. Here's the bad sign for Carr, because I think we're going to end up putting Dallas in something. If it's announced an hour before the game that they're starting Mariota, I'm way more nervous than I would be for Carr. I'd be like, oh no, oh god, that that th- this is like could be a different Raiders team. Who knows? I like on these Thursdays a team that only has a couple days to prepare, that's either in turmoil, coming off a bad loss, looks like it's kind of heading the wrong way. You see these teams just check out on Thursdays. Usually it's the Lions or, or who are, you know, or either the first or the team playing Dallas where you just watch and you go, oh man, that team looks like they can't wait to get to the 10 day break. Feels like that's going to be the Raiders. Dallas has usually been pretty good in these games. I am a little worried about the CD Lamb thing because I don't think he's going to oh, play. And I, I thought so their either. their offense completely changed when he was out. But on the other hand, you know, they have some time to readjust, to pound the ball, run the ball down the Raiders' throats. The Raiders, I think you could throw on them. I think as the weeks have gone on, the fact that the Bengals so easily handled them in the second half last week, I thought was a bad sign. And it just feels like that that's a team with the arrow pointing down. I'm not buying the interim coach getting them ready in three days. So no, and that that there's a pattern of that where the interim coach gets you going, and, and there's all this bluster in the first couple of times out there. Then over the course of the season, it's like, all right, he's an interim coach, he's a special teams coach, and this team was built um, with Gruden's vision and has Gruden's fingerprints all over it. I, I would also look at the Cowboys and say, you know, Tyron Smith might be the best tackle in football. He was out and Chris Jones goes out there and has three and a half sacks and they're injured all over the place, but a lot of teams are injured all over the place. So it's almost like no excuses, find a way to win. You're at home against a, a, a reeling Raiders team. If we're talking just winners, I would think the Cowboys are a safe bet there. Yeah, and I think what we're what I'm looking at, there's a Pat's Bills parlay that's basically even money. It's minus 102. Both mm. of them just have to win. The Pats are playing the Titans. We'll talk about them in a second. Then there's a Pat's Bills Cowboys parlay. All of them just have to win. That's plus 150. So I, I think my instinct is maybe we dabble in both directions with with some real wood. And by the way, I'm ready to put down some real wood this week. It's Thanksgiving. I'm tired of treading water. We got to go back to... We're the guys, once upon a time, 
Five straight weeks. I know. Week 17 through the playoffs last year, we made almost five and a half million dollars. I know. Let's get you that know, back. We need our mojo back, Peter Schrager. I know. At the end of last year, I would go to the airport and there'd be like paparazzi and there'd be TMZ and everyone would be yeah. like, oh my God, million dollar picks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I'm walking off the plane and I'm asking people to notice me and they don't want to even look at me. It's embarrassing. It's like we've lost our mojo. We had an album come out that just was a complete dud. This is the movie that was like, everyone, we were the hottest thing in Hollywood. And now, Bill, we can't even get a table at the hot spot. It, we need to get our mojo back. The only way is to swing big. This is the week. And we're still up $98,000. That's nothing to nothing me. Nothing to That's, be ashamed of. No, Let's it go. is something to be ashamed of. We were up millions. It's true. It's true. But we can get it back. Pat's Titans. Mm. That is a Sunday game. It, the, I'm, I got to repeatedly check FanDuel because the lines were really moving like crazy today. The, this line is settled at minus six, Pat's minus 275. Sal and I talked about this a little on Sunday. You need some luck with this stuff. And I think the Pats have made their own luck to a lot of degrees. But in this case, catching Tennessee this week is really lucky. Where they had, you know, the Pats can be the number one seed in two weeks. They're getting a Tennessee team that doesn't have Derrick Henry. They've thrown three running backs into the mix, including Foreman last week. None of them have looked good. Yeah. AJ Brown goes out last week. Julio's um, out. Julio's gone. They who is the the backup receiver who was getting some fantasy play? He got hurt last week. Yeah, he got hurt. What's that guy's name? I can't Khalif remember. Raymond. Was that what it was? No, who that's was that's it? Detroit. <laughs> who no, was the backup Tennessee guy. I'm sorry, backup Tennessee guy. Nicholas Westbrook Aquina. Was it him? <laughs> Uh, I just think it's going to be really hard for Tennessee to move the ball because, yeah. all right, let's say A.J. Brown even plays. What's Belichick going to do? If, you, if you're only going to show one thing to him, all right, I'll take out that one thing. What else you got? That's what he's going to do. I love this Pats defense. Been talking about it for weeks. I think the defense is playing the best of any defense in the league. They have a real hunger to them, especially late in games, which I think is a really good sign. You saw it with Atlanta where they're just, they're piling up the score. It's like, when you have the really good NFL defense, it turns into the high school football thing where they're like, they're trying Momentum. to get points in the fourth quarter. Yeah, they want more. They don't, they're not just satisfied with winning. And I just think this is a bad spot for Tennessee. The counter would be Vrabel has had a right. lot of success against Belichick. He seems to have a good feel for this stuff, but that was really Brady based and Brady is now not on uh, the Patriots anymore. So, Well, Vrabel has a ton of success. So does Tannehill when he's with the Dolphins. Would always give the, the Patriots fix. Yep. Um, you know, I'm watching that Thursday night game and Van Noy returns that that interception for a for a touchdown. And they, then they interview Van Noy after the game. And Matthew Judon, uh, Mike Reese from ESPN had this. Matthew Judon is standing off to the side during the press conference and he's dancing and laughing. And it's like there's something to this Patriots team that's a little different than years past where they're outwardly having a ton of fun too. Like yep. We always heard that like they're having a blast like in the building and you don't get it. It's really fun there. But like those guys, two weeks ago, Jacoby Myers scores the touchdown. The entire team comes to the end zone in a blowout and yep. it's to celebrate like that moment. They're having fun. They're getting better. And the young guys are improving. Barmore, who we talked about, it was a second round pick and he's dominating the middle of the field. And I had a I had a coach text me after I was talking about him on Good Morning Football, and he was like, you know, this was a, a really weird defensive draft where it was good with corners, a couple linebackers. Parsons is kind of a, a fungible player. Not sure what to do with him, but Barmore is the best defensive lineman in this draft, and he's playing like it. So you add that to Judon, who's been arguably the defensive player of the year, 
And then all these, all these young players that are getting better every week, it's ascending. It's the right feeling. And Tennessee fans, like they come after me because I'll often say, Hey, the Cardinals are winning without Kyler and without DeAndre Hopkins or the, the, the Packers, they pulled it out. I can't believe they won. They didn't even have Bakhtiari. And like the Titans are like, we have 20 players on IR. We have 80 different guys who have missed games because of this. We've had 80 different roster spots filled. I think it caught up with them last week. That loss to Houston was like bound to happen. I could see the Patriots taking care of business here too. Yeah, and the line, even though it's minus six, which is a little hefty, but the Pats are home, 10 days rest. You could argue this should, I think people are judging Tennessee based on the record and the body of work this season, but the team that played Houston last week is not the same team. And I don't think it's going to be the same team this week either. So you could argue you're getting a couple extra points that we could be, uh, this should be Pats minus eight, considering how well the Pats have played the last few weeks. I think I think lost in a lot of the headlines on Monday morning and Tuesday was that Houston Tennessee game, and I watched a lot of it. It's pouring rain; it was gross. But like Houston did not do much on offense. They were giving the Titans every opportunity to come back in this game, and they did cut it yep. to six at the end. But Tannehill threw four bad picks, and that's to like nothing against the Houston Texans. That's a team that was last in the league in offense. Lovey Smith is a defensive coordinator. It's, you know, this isn't like the 85 bears that they were against and they could not move the ball and it was at home. So is that a Mulligan game? Is that just like a, that's one bad one or is that a sign of things to come? I, I think the Patriots are ascending. Tennessee might've seen their best games. Yeah. And they just, they're built around Derrick Henry and play action and two big receivers. They only have one big receiver left. They might not even have the other one this week. And they have they went from the best running back of the last seven years to just this hodgepodge crew of, you know, fill-ins. And it's just not the same team. Do you all think right. that the Patriots bandwagon with all the fans and media is getting a little annoying for you, who was a day one guy who put yourself on the line and said, Ramon no, Stevenson? No, I welcome it. I like you looking do. in the rearview mirror and seeing it fill in the back The amount rows. of people who hit me up in August when you were like, Ramondre Stevenson and, and Damian Harris are as good a one-two as Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. And we're like, you are a, you know what, for not pushing <laughs> I, back on Wait, Simmons. I didn't, I, that's, I didn't a hundred percent say that. What'd you I say? Said, I said, the fantasy football show, they were doing a uh, take purge okay. and it was takes that you kind of believe in, but you're also embarrassed about. And my take purge was Ramadre and Damian Harris are the thinking man's Chubb and Hunt. The thinking man's, okay. Thinking cool. man's Chubb and Hunt. Just like you don't think of them that way, but if you really kind of look at it and you turn a little bit now, <laughs> Chubb and Hunt versus Ramadre and Damian. It's a good discussion. It's a battle. It's a good discussion. Ramadre. I mean, this Pat, I, I, this Pat's the, hitting the past two drafts like they did. So good. Where you get six blue trippers in two years. Listen, I think they win this week. And I think it goes to the Bills next week with really? everyone on the bandwagon. Okay. And then that's when I'm worried. Where it's just like the bandwagon is now. People are standing on the roof. They're grabbing onto the fender trying to hold on. And it's like the Bills. They barely beat the Saints on third. And that's the one I'm I'm a little more worried Did about. Did you hear McDaniels talking about Mac this week, though? I mean, he's saying things. this guy's as smart as that. I mean, really, really complimentary. And I know those Patriots coaches do not like to pump up their own players, but like basically just saying like Mac has got it up here to a point where he's doing things at a very accelerated level and accelerated pace. I'm with you on the vibe with the Pats. Cause even today there was a whole social media thing about 
Judon was basically went in on mac and cheese, how bad it is. He's like, keep that off my table on Thanksgiving. It's, great. it's just noodles and cheese. Like he had literally a monologue about how bad mac and cheese is. And that became a thing. But there's there's a lot more personality than usual. All right. So we're looking at a Pat's Bills parlay straight up, which is minus 102. And then a Pat's Bills Cowboy, Cowboys parlay, which is plus 150. Both of those. You can find all these lines on FanDuel. We're going to take a break. Come back do some straight up and some underdog, and then we'll figure out who we're taking. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra. Not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like McLobe Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at McLobeUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. Okay, there's three straight up games that I really like, and then two more I want to talk about. So I'll, I'll hit the uh, the three I really like first, and then you can tell me what you think. First one is Tampa Bay minus two and a half against the seemingly red hot Colts, mm-hmm. coming off their best game of the year. Always fun to bet against a team the week after their best game. That game goes perfectly for them. Big lead early, they can run the ball. Buffalo's kind of has two left feet. And it's just like, if you're a Colts fan, that couldn't have played out better. Now you have Tom Brady coming in. 11-3 and three regular season against the Colts. 4-1 and one playoffs against the Colts. 15-4 and four overall. What year do you think was the last year he lost to the Colts? Mm. Uh, 2009. 2009. Nice. That was a guess. Who was the team that ushered in Deflategate and tried to humiliate Tom Brady, led to a four-game suspension, and tarnished his uh, wonderful legacy. What team that was that? That would be off a DeQuell Jackson interception by the Indianapolis Colts in the rain in, in Foxborough, yes. Brady does not like the Colts. I do believe with quarterbacks, I do think the great ones have like the two or three teams where they're just like, oh, I own these guys. And I think the Colts are one of them. We're getting less than a field goal in this game from Tampa. Tampa, good run defense. Now, uh, New Orleans, who was the team that gashed them a little bit? New Orleans a couple weeks ago? Yeah, they ran all over them. A few teams have. Yeah. But on paper, we we, we should get Vita Vey next week, I'm guessing. I don't know. I don't know. Vey he was out it. in the warm-ups yesterday, like, trying to test it out, which makes I me know. think they we might see it. him. Yeah. Um, I don't know, man. I think the I think Demp is about to go on a run. You would bet against Indy after last week. I just have such a hard time thinking that. Okay, after what they did to us when we took the Bills and ripped our heart out, and then the way they play, it's it's really responsible football. Taylor runs the ball, and Wentz, who's usually careless, does not make mistakes. Like I watched that whole game, and there's third and six, and it's it's, it's third and ten, and it's like Wentz just making the smart pass. In the rain. I, Think about what you're saying. You're talking about Carson Wentz. He's, He's roping well. you in. He's sucking you in. Now you I want know. to take him against Tom Brady. Think about that. Think about think about your words. There's so many games, though, this week. Why would you touch this one? It's more a Tampa play. That's why I want to talk about it. Because getting less than a field goal, I think they're better. 
I think Tampa is still my NFC pick. If I had gun to my head, who am I taking the NFC? I still like them the most. At Indy this week, at Atlanta next week, Buffalo, New Orleans home, at Carolina, at New Jersey, home Carolina. I believe they're two and three on the road. They lost to Washington very recently. They're not, they're putting up a lot of points at home and they're beating up on bad teams. Colts are not a bad team. Okay. Stay away, Bill. Next one is Miami, Carolina. Miami is getting a point and a half. Who do you like? In Miami. Miami has won three straight. They're now four and seven. Now, granted, two of the teams they played stunk. One of them was Baltimore on a Thursday night. And the tendency is to be like, throw that away Thursday night, stupid. But they still beat Baltimore. Yeah. Their defense seems like it's found a little bit of an identity the last three weeks. It's back to the uh, the blitz-happy, Brian flores kind of feel to it. They have no first-round pick. Next week, bye. Okay. Next two weeks, Giants-Jets. There's a there's little a feeling. World, there's a world where we look up and the Miami Dolphins are 7-7. Seven and seven. And we're like, what? What did that happen? The Dolphins are 7-7? Seven and seven? Yeah. This is now in play. You look at Carolina. Cam Newton, oh my God, it's great to see him back. Oh, number one. Boo-hoo. Tough. Eight, 18 first downs total last week for them. 3-12 and 12 on third and fourth down combined. This is what we saw with the Pats. It's fine when it's second and three. It's fine when it's third and two. But once you go third and seven, third and eight, third and nine, third and 10, he's not hitting anybody. Guess what the longest play for a receiver was for them last week? This is again Washington. Again, Washington team that had no Chase Young. Yeah. Who? How much? How many yards? 13. Yeah. And their strength is Robbie Anderson going deep. And if you can't get him the ball, it's kind of ineffective. And then DJ Moore is great after the catch, but he also has some speed. If Cam can't get him the ball, it kind of... That loots their importance as well. So Miami's getting points here. And I don't know, is there a difference between these two teams? I just feel like we're getting two free points. And I like where things are going for Miami too. I don't think Carolina's very good, honestly. I'm down with that. I'll roll with Miami. They're hot. They've won three straight games. There's this feeling of like, everyone counted us out. Let's rally around us, blah, 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 blah. And I agree. Carolina does not scare me offensively, even with Christian McCaffrey. We saw it last week. I, I was thinking McCaffrey was going to gash Washington. It didn't happen. Um, Miami's defense is better than Washington's. Yeah, you look at the Carolina quarterbacks. Since week five, passing yards, 177, 207, 112, 129, 172, 167, 189. Three different quarterbacks. From a point standpoint, um, yeah, they whipped on Arizona, but I, you know, that was Kyler getting scratched and yeah. Arizona kind of threw that game away pretty quickly. And I think we overreacted a little on that one. Yeah. And Cam played nine snaps in that game. The story afterwards was Cam Newton came back and had two touchdowns. He played nine. PJ Walker went 22 or 29 in that game and didn't get a name in the headline the next morning. It was like, Cam's back. He screamed at the cameras. Yeah. And then it was like, eh. um, I think Miami, Miami low. I think they load up. I don't think they're afraid week. of the long ball at all. I think they load up. They just try to take out McCaffrey and they're blitzing every time it's third and five, third and six. Hey, listen, Miami beat the Pats week one and it was yep. a good game. Yep. Tua, it seems like they figured out some of his limitations and they've just kind of worked around them. The Gaskin, the running game is a little bit better. And Waddle, Waddle's good. I traded in one of my leagues, but man, they're starting to really figure out how to use him in all these different ways. Um, I don't know. I like Miami plus one and a half. All right, we'll Let's mark do that I one mean- down. Next one is Vikes plus three against San Francisco. We've loved the Vikes this whole time. We rode them last week. 
They've been very precious to us this year. Very They're five precious. and five. They could easily be eight, two or three plays. Rest of the way at San Francisco, at Detroit. So they take care of business this week. All of a sudden, they're seven and five. Pittsburgh at Chicago, Rams at Green Bay, Chicago. Can you um, bet against San Francisco after the last two weeks, the way they've just manhandled opponents? Okay. Who are the opponents? Okay. The Rams. They had an 18 play, you know, 11 minute drive to start the game. And then last week against Jacksonville, it was the same stuff. Like they are demoralizing teams right now, just shoving the ball down their throats. I, I don't know if I would bet for them, but I don't know if I could bet against them right now. It feels like something's clicking with the 49ers. Let's talk about the Rams game because that felt like, like it didn't seem like Stafford was healthy at all in that game, which we're going to talk about when we talk about Green Bay Rams. Like, It seems like Stafford's hurt. Rams can't run the ball. Nobody's afraid of their running game anymore. And defensively, the Niners got up a little bit early and then they're one of those teams. They're like the Colts. If they can get up 10, they're good to go. I guess with Minnesota, one thing that I really liked from them last week was they, they, they're just like, look, if we're going down, let's throw the rock. Yeah. Let's, (laughs) let's Jefferson, you've got to go downfield five, six times a game. We're just going to try to get you the ball. They really used their skill guys last week. And I thought the Packers played pretty well in that game. They did. You know, they, they hit some big plays. They kept coming back in Minnesota. Um, they kept fending them off, but they have three really, really high level skill guys and cousins who, as you watch all these quarterbacks, the difference between Kirk cousins in the bottom 12 in the league is like a pretty big gap. You know, and you think how many bad quarterbacks we watched last week? We can go down the list and it's like, all right, Kirk cousins has two interceptions this season. And I, I said it on our show on good morning football. I'm like, we're talking about Josh Allen and Dak for MVP. Is Cousins playing any worse than those guys? Well, those guys win games. When it matters. Cousins has been fine this year, and they've lost in crazy fashion to Cooper Rush and to you know fumbling and then missing that kick against Arizona. They could very easily be like eight and two or nine and one. They could be eight um, and two in three plays. They could. And uh, we, how about the Mike Zimmer revelations? Oh my God, we love them. Are Go ahead. Tell, tell the audience. <laughs> I'm not telling the audience anything. Oh, there's, there's stuff on the internet. He might have a 26-year-old model girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I could see her in the box at the Super Bowl. Australian model is what the internet said about Mike Zimmer. Now, Mike I Zimmer. Who knows if it's true? Who knows? Deny, but Mike Zimmer seems to have uh, hit a groove here, and they've won a couple games in a row. Uh, I don't know. I, I think they're really fun to root for. I know you said you have a friend. What's his name? Jeff? Jeff Gallo, who's who refused to, to watch him. Refused, refused to watch. He's he probably turned the TV off after the interception before it was overturned. I like the plus three. I think we should take the points. Okay, I'm in. Because I like here's thing: five losses for them. OT by three, by one, by seven, by four, by three in OT. Like they play close games. They hang around. Yeah, they can also catch up near the end. And um, I don't know, like who who's playing running back for the what was it Jeff Wilson Jr. Jeff Wilson. last week Jeff Wilson and then Elijah time. Milchin Elijah Mitchell is always seems to have some ailment this Kyle, now it's a two finger Kyle rolled out a formation at one point and I it it was my favorite play of the year it was an incomplete pass from Jimmy but it was it was Brandon Ayuk at tight end and Jeff Wilson at wide receiver and Yuschek at wide receiver Kittle at fullback and Debo at running back it's like oh, let's just try everything and let's just run the ball that's what they do. Uh, if they if the Vikings can get this to be a shootout, then I'll take the Vikings. But if this game is, you know, Kyle Shanahan, 16 plays, 11 minutes to start the game, good night. We're done. Field goal, 
getting a fi- this feels like a field goal game to me. I okay. like the plus three. We lose the All big right. if we lose. Green Bay is minus one against the Rams. To me, this is a I don't believe in the Rams pick if you're taking the Packers, which is why I wanted to talk it out. And again, it doesn't seem like Stafford's healthy. And it really does seem like the lack of a running game in a pretty mediocre offensive line makes me nervous. On the flip side, they're coming off a bye, whole week to integrate Odell. And I feel like this is a stay away, but I just wanted to point out the blatant lack of respect for the Packers, who I know. were not were I think nine and one against the spread until last week. Or they have the best still have the best record of the week against the spread. Week after week, people seem to be underestimating them. And that's why I mentioned Tampa earlier. At some point, we have to decide who we think is winning the NFC. And to me, it's either Tampa or Green Bay. And if it's Tampa or Green Bay, they should both win these weeks with under a field goal lines. And yet something scares me about the Rams. I think it's a stay away. Let's talk it out. Yeah. Packers come in hobbled and Rogers, you know, he said it, it's worse than turf toe. What he had, he looked amazing on Sunday. He was so dialed in and he was throwing to Lazard and Marquez Valdez, Scantling and guys who, and Equiminius St. Brown guys who have not been having big years and have been injured. He was clicking with them. Um, I feel like I wouldn't want to face, and again, I'm biased because I talk to him often and we we know I did the podcast with him, but like, I don't want to face McVay off a bye where he's had seven straight days to build an offense for this game. And McVay and LaFleur are very tight. They know each other. LaFleur got the best of him in the playoffs last year, but McVay's beaten LaFleur in the past. I just would stay away on this one. I know that killed Sean to lose like he did on Monday Night Football to Kyle Shanahan, the 49ers. And your bye week, you know, do you want to go to Santa Barbara? Do you want to fly to, to Cabo? Do you want? He stayed at home and was just working on this. And whether that's good or bad, I would say if we have a choice not to bet against them, I would say let's at least give him this week to see what he cooked up for Odell. Because oddly enough, that was welcomed with a lot of like eye rolling. Like they need Odell. Like Robert right. Woods is out. They need Odell to be really good. And I know a lot of the week was spent on the offense and trying to build something that's going to make sense to be able to compete with the Packers. And that's why I don't totally trust that Niners game because Woods gets hurt right before that game. Mm-hmm. You're talking one above average skill guy at that point on their team because Odell only played like nine, 10 snaps and Stafford who looked really hurt and like he needed a buy. And I just feel like that was one of those weeks. I'm not going to overreact to it. So last one, this would be an anti-Seahawks bet. Washington favored by one over Seattle. Wow, are they? Yeah. I think it's a stay away. I wanted to talk it out quick because it does feel like rock bottom for Seattle. And, and, you know, they just had a bunch of bad drafts in a row. And then on top of it, they trade the two picks for Adams. The offense has been impotent. Terrible. The running back situation is as bleak as it's been for them. And Wilson looks like a guy who's got six games left and he's out. Um. I just wish I liked Washington more. I feel like it's a stay away. But they did. Uh, they won for us last week. They went into Carolina they did. and won that game. Heineke's got them playing well. Uh and and Gibson and yeah, they McLaurin. Like they they have a couple guys who really seem like they're competing and trying to make the playoffs, which I like. Could Seattle really lose again? Could yeah. could Russell lose? I saw the craziest that um the Cardinals actually sent it along to me that Colt McCoy is the only quarterback in the NFL to win in Seattle last season and this season because Russell Wilson still has not won a home game and he won one McCoy with the Giants last year and 
Geno Smith's the only one to win at home this year for the Seahawks. Like it is that bleak. And gosh, if they lose to Washington, that starts to question like, is Pete the guy moving forward? Like you start having all these questions because they were all in for this season and it's not yeah. happening. And the Adams trade looks Oof. like a mini catastrophe. Bad. All right. We'll stay away from that one. Just a couple other ones to mention really quick. I really wanted to bet against the Browns again this week, but I don't like the Ravens spot. And I don't, and on a Tuesday where we have no idea what's going with Lamar's too many questions, but the Ravens are minus three and a half over the Browns. And I just, I just don't see it with the Browns. I think the quarterback situation and the lack of firepower offensively is pretty much insurmountable. And they're in a position of a lot of teams. Like if they can get an early lead and just run the ball, they're okay. But I have no faith in their ability to come from behind by even three points. But sadly, we can't wager against them. Chargers, Broncos, Mm. Chargers minus two and a half in Denver. And Denver's looking like a a, a tad tasty. Really? I'm staying away. But I'm just saying, you know, Denver hurt our feelings recently. They did. The Chargers coming off the Sunday night comeback win where you're like, oh, Chargers, they're back. And then you think like the Steelers, like basically everyone's hurt on their defense except Cam Hayward. And should we be this excited about them? I think it's a stay away. Wanted to mention it. And then, um, and then there's one game I really like, Bill. Let's hear it. Giants, Eagles, Eagles coming to town like a house on fire. Giants coming off one of their worst losses in recent memory. And, Giants retiring Michael Strahan's jersey at halftime with a building full of Eagles fans. Uh, as I know, that's what's going to be the case. I just feel like you can't find two teams going in more different directions right now. Interesting. What is the spread on that one? Eagles minus three and a half against the Giants. And the reason I stayed away was it looked like the most obvious pick of the week. Sometimes it's I didn't want, understand nose. why it wasn't six the way the Eagles. So do you believe in the Eagles? Make the case for the Eagles just in general as a, yeah. as a late bloomer team. Yeah. 200 yards rushing the last two weeks. Their quarterback Jalen Hurts has now had 50 yards rushing in five straight games. Last one to do that was Cunningham for the Eagles. And their offensive line is mauling teams. That that Saints rush defense is number one in the league. They went for about 240 last week. Jeff Stoutland's the coach of that offensive line. And it's like, Maialata, it was this project that they've built. And now he's one of the best tackles in the sport, just manhandling guys. Kelsey, Johnson, Driscoll, these guys were, they were having such ease with that good New Orleans front. And it's like, there is a momentum to this where they run the ball well and Hertz finds a way to get first downs. And they've now won two big games in a row off of a loss to the Chargers where a lot of teams would have said, all right, that's the season. Like 24-24, Chargers suck the the wind out of the, the ball and win in their building. But they answered with that win in Denver and the win against New Orleans. I feel like the Eagles are just getting started. And I mentioned it last week. It's picking up more speed now. But they play the Giants this week. They play the Jets the following week. They play Washington. They play the Giants again. And then they play the Cowboys. So that's at home. They don't have to board a plane the rest of the way. And I feel like they're feeding off that. And Sirianni, I said it before the season started, it's either going to be they believe in them or the veterans are going to roll their eyes. And right now it looks like they're believing in them. Can I interest you in a Pat's Eagles plus 114 money parlay? I love that. Do you like that more than Pat's Bills minus 102? I like both of those. This is the weak bill. I think you talked me into that one. 
I'd like the money line more than the minus three and a half. Something scares me about that okay. half point. Seems fishy. Put it this way. Who's taking the Giants plus three and a half in that game? Name a person in your life who's like, you know who I like? The Giants. Freddie Kitchens' children. He's going to be calling the plays on Sunday. <laughs> Jason Garrett's out. Freddie Kitchens calling the plays on Sunday? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my Freddie, Lord. Back in the seat. Let's Jesus. go. Um, the, the Strahan thing's interesting, though. Like, they planned this before the season. I believe the Fox NFL Sunday crew, Terry, Howie, all the guys, they're flying out for it. Like, this could get ugly. If they're down 21 to nothing at half, like John Mara wants to come out there as the owner and that the Giants fans either that are in the building are not going to be happy. And then the Eagles fans are buying up tickets. They're got like the Eagles fans are alive right now. Like it is, it is a house on fire with Eagles. Like, oh my God, we found it. Like we've got it. Giants are the opposite, right? Like this could get really ugly on Sunday. Jeff Chow and Chris Ryan from the ringer, Philly fans were asking me, what are we going to do about the su the Super Bowl? Can we be in the same suite, like, or should we be we different suites? The Eagles, be... five, the Eagles are five and six. Five They're and asking six. about Super Bowl tickets. Um, I'm all in on that. So underdog parlay of the week. We goddamn we came close last oh, week. Oh, Steelers came all the way. Oh back. my god, we have we've hit I think three during the season, but we have. we've had we've three more that we were winning with two minutes to go. The Steelers, we had them tied to the Vikings last week. And uh, Washington, it would have been. We would have hit both of them. It, it would have been, been huge. We would have won thirty three thousand each, but the, we would have won that back. But it would have been. I think we would have won like four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So that was I tough. Know. I know. Well, we have the Lions plus one forty six this week. We can go back to the Steelers at plus one sixty four. They are playing the Bengals. They're in Cincinnati. That's up to plus 166 on FanDuel. A lot of action today. A lot of action. People are alive. Plus 166, Steelers and the Bengals. And then we have the Vikings, plus 134 in San Francisco, I think are, are the three. I think it'd be fun to include the Lions in one of them just because just it's Thanksgiving. So we would have all three Thanksgiving teams. Sure. Lions with Steelers, plus 166. Okay. Or Lions with Vikings plus 134. My only issue with the Lions is that they haven't won a game yet, Bill. This will be it. It. <laughs> it would be a very special underdog parlay. They're a really bad football team. They're really awful. Um, it's one thing to say that they might win. It's another to say, let's go Lions. It's Then again, this is going to be one of the worst football games played all season. Why not have a dog in this fight? Why not pick the scrappy underdogs at home playing for pride? I don't know if it's golf. I don't know if it's Boyle. I'm with you. Let's go with the Lions. <laughs> They're really then, awful. The, oh well, the Bears. So the Bears are going to have Andy Dalton. Yep. And lots of rumors of the coach getting fired right after the game. And fire Nagy chance, not just at Bears games, but Bulls at a Bulls games, game huh? last night. <laughs> Sad. So it's pretty brutal. And they're really banged up on defense. Like, yeah, no Khalil no, Mack rest of the year. No Mack, no Hicks, like no Robin. Like they had, uh, they should have won that game against the Ravens. It's crazy they lost, but here we are. Isn't this the game the Lions have to win? They don't win right. this one. When are they winning? They, they get, they get, how do you see up, it though? How do you see it? Watch a lot of Lions. You see DeAndre Swift just going nuts. Like, what do you see? Swift is probably feel good about him. I think okay. they need a special teams play and Andy Dalton to be Andy Dalton okay. would be the recipe. Yeah. And if you're Dan Campbell, this is it, right? 
you you don't want to go oh sixteen and one on this season. I think we put him in. What about what about Lions Steelers plus five fifty four and then a little Steelers Vikings plus five fifty two? We do a little. You're combat. big on the Steelers, even with the, all the guys being out, like the Bengals. You didn't feel like that was a good win for Cincy. I'm not big on the Steelers at all. I don't. I'm just looking for underdogs. The weird thing about this week is that we don't have a lot of those like plus 150 yeah. plus 170 type of underdogs we could do let me see i mean we had the browns plus 158 against baltimore but we'd be banking on like lamar not playing again yeah maybe uh maybe we just do lions vikings for plus 475 let's do it all right all right when we come back the million dollar picks for week 12 This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is already stressful enough to deal with airports, delayed flights, bad weather. You want your actual where you're staying experience to be perfect, to be lights out. You don't want to have to worry about anything. When you book a vacation rental, you want to know exactly what you're paying ahead of time. The stress of getting hit with unexpected cleaning fees after your stay, that can immediately cancel out all the great time you just spent unwinding. Thankfully, when you book with Verbo, you can see the total price upfront. There are no unpleasant surprises and the savings do not stop there, my friends. When you book with Verbo, you earn 2% cash back toward your next vacation through the One Key Rewards program, letting your money do the work for you while you've got your feet up. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your next private vacation rental in the Verbo app. All right, Million Dollar Picks, Thanksgiving edition. Week 12, we are up 98,000 for the season. We are opening up this week. We're going all in. We are up in the stakes. We are trying to get some momentum. Peter Schrager, we're tired of being on the hamster wheel. We're swinging big. It's time. Like we've been eh, dibbling and dabbling. Like this is the week. It's Thanksgiving. All the families around on Wednesday night. Everyone's making out with their high school sweethearts at the local bar. We're swinging big. Let's go. All right, first one. We're trying to get two Thanksgiving teams into this. We d- we're not inviting anyone from the Bears-Lions game for this parlay. No. Patriots playing on Sunday with Dallas playing the Raiders and Buffalo in New Orleans on Thursday night. I mean, we're going to money line parlay those three together. It's plus 150 for those three. I'm going to put 600K on that. 600? Yeah, 600K on that. Oh, we're not done because of Pat's Bills money line parlay. That's minus 102. We'll put 300K on that. Come on. Let's go. Patriots. Let's go. We're on the, we're on it. Pat's Eagles. Again. Plus 114. We're going back on let's that. Go. 300K. Another go. one. That is plus 114. So we are using the Pats as our swing team this week. All they have to do is beat the Titans. No Derrick Henry. No Julio Jones. AJ Brown, questionable. New England home completely healthy, take care of business, prove that you want to be the number one seed. I'm all in. Three Pats bets. Starting that, you agree with that? I don't care about a potential trap game before Buffalo. I don't care that Ryan Tannehill owns the Patriots. I don't care that Mike Vrabel never loses. I don't care. We're all in. Let's go. All right. Next one. You wouldn't let me bet on Tampa. For all the people in the social media videos, Schrager just... He just agrees with Simmons. Pulled you I back. wanted to do Tampa minus two and a half over. I pulled Indy. you off of that. I wanted Tom Brady, 11 and three regular season, four and one against the Colts in the playoffs. 
Hasn't lost to them in 2009. Getting less than a field goal. You said no. You no. threw your body in front of it. Threw my body in no. front of it. You took my car keys. You were like, no, no, no. Get out of the car. You're not doing this. I was responsible. I'm a friend. And of all the things you could do, betting against Jonathan Taylor right now is the least responsible thing you could do, Bill. Let's stay away from that one. Let's let's get out of that game altogether. Well, we're not staying away from Miami. Not red hot, but definitely the, like the, the water's boiling on the stove for them a little <laughs> bit, right? Almost Simmering. ready to throw the pasta in. Miami, four and seven with the legitimate chance to be seven and seven in three weeks because after this Carolina game, they play, they have a bye, they play Giants and the Jets. We're going to take Miami plus one and a half against Carolina and Cam Newton, who I just, against Miami's defense, I think it's going to be Miami's defense. Jalen Waddell, they have no first round pick. This is their season. Brian Flores, very passionate guy in the locker room. Hey guys, we're not out of this. 10 and seven can make the playoffs. Nine and eight might make the playoffs. We're not quitting. Send in the house against Carolina. Miami plus one and a half. We're going to go 250,000 on that. Uh, I'm in. Let's go. And then the Vikings. Mm, this one we talked about for a long time. We talked uh, about it. I think I got you there. I think I got you there. You get, you were a little, you, you were a little too excited about San Francisco killing Jacksonville and then beating the Rams without Robert Woods and Stafford all banged up and Odell coming in and get the lead. I'm not know, scared love, of that. I love a Kyle Shanahan 18 play drive. I'm not scared of Kyle Shanahan and his 450 winning percentage. I'm not. You you bet against Kyle Shanahan 55% of the time you're going to win because that's his career winning percentage. Um, Vikes plus three. I love that this is, you could still, they lose by a field goal, you could still cover. And I think this is a field goal game. I think they have a chance to win. I love that they're airing out to Justin Jefferson. I like that Thielen got a little more involved. I like the Cook-Madison combo. And then Kirk Cousins. You see that list? 300 yards, three TDs, career games, and it's like all the great quarterbacks in history, dot, 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 and Kirk Cousins. It's like the old Jeff Ross, Ross joke. Like, it's not honor to be here with so many great comedians and Tommy Davidson. <laughs> um, <laughs> Love it, live in color. Um, two interceptions on the year for Cousins. Say what you want about their record. They're five and five. They've lost a lot of close games. Cousins has been money and Cousins has put up big numbers. Can he go into San Francisco against his old mentor? Kyle Shanahan's his mentor. That's his guy. I think he can. Let's go. 250K in the Vikings. You want to put a little more on the on the Eagles? Do you have Let's enough? Go. Do we have enough in the Eagles? You want a little more? You want Eagles minus three and a half? I'm envisioning all Eagles fans at this Giants game in MetLife. They're honoring Strahan and half the place is wearing John Runyon jerseys. Let's go. How about this? You don't trust my Tampa pick. I don't totally trust the Eagles minus three and a half because it looks too easy. What if we parlay them? What if we do a, a circle of trust parlay? Tampa minus two and a half. Eagles minus three and a half. We'll just put, we'll put, I don't know, 150K on it plus 260 parlay. This is, this is, this is a wonderful idea. Circle know, of trust. You and me, it. Tom Brady, it. Jalen Hurts. 150K to win plus 260 if we hit that. Do you see that many Saints in Newark? The little pinky swear at the end? Yeah. That's what I feel like we're doing here. That's yeah. it. There you, you go. Me, pal. Last one. Underdog parlay of the week. Not a lot of great candidates this week. No. We, we came off last week. We almost hit on both of them. And mm. then the Steelers, who I think the D-back might have been concussed, forgot to cover Mike Williams. He just got hit kneed in the head eight minutes ago. And Mike Williams is running right by him. We're going to do a little... 
just a little little sprinkling. We want to get the, uh, the Lions-Bears game involved in Thanksgiving. Okay. It's going to be awful. It's the Lions' one chance to win. We're going to take the Lions. We're going to put them with the Vikings. Plus 475. Little sprinkling, 33K on that. Just to say we did it. it to borrow a Thanksgiving analogy, this is like, ah, do we also need the sweet potatoes with the brown sugar on top? We have so many other things. It's like, yeah, let's let's get the Why sweet not? potatoes. Why not? You're, you're already pot committed with all the other stuff. You might yeah, as well. We, have, might we as well. have nine different hors d'oeuvres on the table. It's like, uh, why not? We'll also get the sweet potatoes. So we're doing a little underdog parlay as well. You got DeAndre Swift like eating a turkey leg after the game. That's how you <laughs> see it. Yeah. Oh yeah, he wins the turkey leg yeah. thing. Oh, I wish we could bet on that. Can we bet that? that? Does Fanduel have that? What is it? Tur it's, a, it's a fox game. What's their thing? It's a turducken. Turkey? I think. I think it's like yeah. Tur well, they do have. Either DeAndre Swift or David Montgomery to have 100 yards plus rushing is plus 125. This feels like a Swift game. Let's go big on Swift. Can you want to do, do anything it, on individual do, odds? You know what we'll do? I have an idea. You can bet you on FanDuel most rushing yards for the day. DeAndre Swift plus 450 to have the most rushing yards of anyone on Thanksgiving. Here are the other nominees. Montgomery plus 250. Zeke Elliott plus 430. Ingram plus 450, Josh Jacobs 5 to 1, Josh Allen 10 to 1. Here's why I like Swift. Got Penny Sewell up front. They're trying to prove themselves. Last year's second round pick, this year's first round pick. They're getting their first win. It's going to be a close game. It's going to be one in the trenches. DeAndre Swift goes for 123 and three touchdowns. Let's go. 33K on that. Those are the million dollar Thanksgiving picks. That's okay. Eight on the let's go scale, I feel like. That was a 10. All right, let's go. We're all let's in go. this week. Let's go. Good to see you, Peter Schrager. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving. You too. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra, not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at McLobeUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. All right, Jim Miller is here. We are taping this. It's a Monday. We're running out on a Tuesday. He just released a new oral history book about HBO. It's called Tinderbox. How many years were you working on it? A little over three, maybe three. You did CAA, you did ESPN, you did SNL twice. Um, what made you want to do HBO? Uh, a, it had never been done before. B, it's wholly consistent with the other three in terms of started in the 70s from very modest origins and people didn't think it was going to last. And, yeah. Uh, I think it's clear, most importantly, that it's had a undisputable major impact on both television and I'd say the culture. I knew at least pieces of like 75% of it, the corporate stuff didn't know a lot of, especially when you go into the first two decades of it. What struck me as I read everything, a lot of what ifs 
a lot of sliding doors. And ESPN had the same thing, which I think is what's fun about rereading this stuff. You have moments where like, I mean, who knows if they actually could have bought Netflix, but at least they were discussing it in the mid 2000s. Um, you have the Fox trying to buy them in 2014. Going way back, you have all the stuff they had with the different you know, presidents, people jockeying for the top title, people trying to figure out where broadband was going. I was both amazed that the company emerged from that intact and as powerful as it is. And at the same time thinking it actually could have been more powerful in a couple of different iterations, right? Right. I mean, look, I try and create a narrative running through all 49 years. And one of one of the themes, or at least one of the things that is reoccurring is just how many times there was the ubiquitous fork in the road. Because I think it was important to point out to readers that there's never been a stock called HBO. Yeah, you, you, you could never at any point from the moment that it went on the air, you could never just directly interact with HBO. They were always owned by another entity above them. And sometimes that was a boon and sometimes it was a bane to their existence. And to try and you know, track that and try and isolate why those things happened uh, and, and how things could have been different. I think is really important. I mean, look, everybody talks, you just brought up Netflix and everybody talks about, oh, they, you know, they could have bought Netflix in 2005 or 2006. Well, first of all, I'm not sure Reed's selling, but second yep. of all, people forget that it had just, I mean, they've just emerged, Time Warner, their parent company, it just emerged from this incredible ground war in Southeast Asia called AOL. So it's like, oh yeah, right. Try going to Wall Street and say, oh yeah, we just had $200 billion in write-offs. And now we want to go and buy this thing that, you know, there's little cute red little envelopes with DVDs in it. And uh, by the way, they're not earning any money. It's impossible. Now, if there had been a different parent company, maybe they have the freedom, uh, you know, both with their investors and with their cash. But there was no way Time Warner was going to be able to do it. A lot of similarities with ESPN, like basically what you just laid out and some other stuff about where you have like these parents that you become kind of the apple of the parent's eye in some cases. In other cases, you might have a bad parent come in. You're always used as this shiny toy to either try to drive the stock price up, but they never think about selling you because it would have too much dramatic of impact. I mean, basically the same thing, right? Disney could have sold off ESPN at any point, but it was too much of a cash cow. And HBO for a lot of years could have been sold off or spun out or whatever. And they were never going to do that. It was too successful. Right. In the case of ESPN in 1996, Eisner, they buy Cap City's ABC. ABC is valued at zero. And Eisner goes on to say the crown jewel is ESPN. Right. And like a bunch of people standing around in Bristol saying, what the hell? That's us? I mean, we're the crown jewel of this thing. And uh, I think a lot of people at HBO uh, were amazed at how important HBO was, particularly given, you know, the, the fact that at some points, Time Maker, Time Warner, there was many different companies. There was a ton of companies underneath that banner. So um, it was it was illuminating to, to, to see those sequences. But then when Stanky comes in in 2018, who was running AT&T, AT&T acquires HBO as part of their whole Time Warner merger. And he makes the point, you guys should actually be making more money. You guys should be growing. This is how tech people think about this stuff, right? You're doing this, you're doing great, but actually you should be doing more. How do you do more? Which was anathema to everything HBO is about. Without, what do you mean do more? We, we're the best. 
we're not, we're going to pick and choose. This is what we do. We don't do more. We're not, we're not in the volume business. And you were able to lay out with a little perspective because it was only three, four years ago when all this is going out. Now more people are willing to talk. Plupper's out of there who used to run HBO. But um, you had a lot and a lot of stuff in there near the tail end of the book about this was two cars just playing chicken going right at each other. And Plepper's going to lose that one every time. Yeah, I go into a little bit of detail on this infamous town hall that Stanky and Plepper did. And you could just see at that moment that this is, they are not lined up properly. And look, Stanky, to his credit, uh, or at least you understand what Stanky, he's played, paid a premium for the company and he wants to make money and he wants to make sure that at t shareholders get the best of this deal. The problem is that, you know, it's a lot more difficult than people thought. And you need a lot more money than they were, than at t was willing to spend. And in fairness to them, they got sidelined for 17 months by the Department of Justice. Uh, you know, Trump held up this merger as long as he could. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was, uh, it was problematic from the start. Did you... You were working on the book as that was all gone, right? You were in motion with it at that point or no? Oh, or yeah. you thought about doing it? Yeah, yeah. So you oh. know, even you've already done some of the background stuff, you know, even as it's, you know, this story that's occurring every day in different news places, you know that this is actually going to be worse than maybe people realize. Well, in fact, I was going to do HBO before CA book. And I just, when I started doing my research, I realized that Time Warner was going to have to sell. And so I wanted to wait until that transaction. So I put CA first before, because there was no doubt in my mind that there was, there was just no way Time Warner was going to be able to survive on its own. And the story had to play out and all that stuff. Um, I want to hit a couple of big themes in the book, because obviously HBO has been in my life since, fuck, late, late 70s. I think my dad had the box after my parents separated. He had the, back when you put the box on top of the TV and we could get boxing and some movies and then... Eventually, it got on the cable in the early 80s, and the movies were really the first thing where it was like, holy shit, like, they're going to they're have Rambo 2? Uncensored without commercials, and that's a big driver, that and sports. And then all of a sudden, blockbusters started appearing on the corner, and HBO's like, oh shit, wait a second, you know, we, we got to do something different. And that really tried, you know, that really moved them into original programming. Yeah, and... The movies were the hook. The fact that we're still pretty early in the whole VHS era just, just kind of evolved. Blockbusters, not even close to being blockbuster yet. And the chance to just be able to watch movies again. And they would have their cast of movies that some of which we do on the rewatchables, but they would just play Eddie and the Cruisers. It would be on five days a week for you know a month and a half. They didn't have the same kind of library. It was, it was tough to figure out who you could get different. But then as the, as the 80s evolved, they start making shows. And you go into like, there's this 10 year window before Larry Sanders when they're, they're making their own stuff, but it's not hitting. Sanders was the first one, you know, first well, and 10 and the hitchhiker. Series. Right. But you're talking about series, Bill, because the other thing that's going on is if you're like a comedian in the late seventies or in the eighties, you yeah. get four minutes with Johnny Carson and the networks are going to know every single word you're going to say. So there's big censorship. If you're all of a sudden, I mean, HBO was so smart. Michael Fuchs, they laid out, look, come on on for an hour. We don't care what you say. We won't even look at it. You, so George Carlin does seven words that you can't say on television, on television, which is great. You have 
you know, Rodney Dangerfield giving Andrew Dice Clay free reign. You have all the these- young comedian special. That was iconic so, back in the day. I mean, so at a time that before they were able to even afford to do original series, they were able, because of comedy, because of music, I mean, Bette Midler and yeah. all the incredible music, Whitney Houston, and Madonna, and even Springsteen. I mean, they were doing music specials that you couldn't see anywhere else either. So they figured out a way, plus the sports, right? Boxing, they got Burns and Hagler and all these, un- Tyson, I mean, at its height. They have all these different kinds of offerings that you can't get anyplace else. So even though they weren't ready with the half hour or the hour model, uh, for a scripted television, they were they were able to more than hold their own there um, for, for for about eight or ten years. Yeah, but like TV shows were fifth on the pecking order because you had movies, you had comedy, you had the sports, you had music, and then let's be honest, you had movies with nudity. I think was almost as important to them as TV series. Like they quickly realized this is another lane for us, and they leaned into it with not only some of their first original shows, but even some of the later night movies they showed. And then- Wait, and documentaries. Because Sheila Nevins in the documentary documentary unit is doing Real Sex, Cat House. I mean, all these uh, taxi cab confessions. And those things were huge. Yeah. I mean, they they just, I mean, she told me, she said, we didn't even have to publicize them. Everyone knew when they were on. They got great numbers and no one else was doing anything like that. So I think that they were- very, very smart. In fact, it was so hard to get the series started that Chris Albrecht wound up making shows for the networks. He does Martin and he does Everybody Loves Raymond because Michael Fuchs said, we were not, we're not ready to carry deficits like that. We can't, we can't afford to do those shows. So Albrecht says, all right, what the hell? He says, I'll just make them for other people. They, they struck oil a few times there in the 80s because you had the two Eddie Murphy specials which I think the Delirious was the reason I got HBO because it was like, this is the only way you could see this. Like, all right, how do, how do we get this? Start badgering your mom. In my case, my mom, my stepdad. We need HBO. I need to see this Eddie Murphy thing. Tyson in 86 was a big one. And you, you covered this in the book pretty extensively, but the first comic relief was kind of the, the highlight of comedy, I think, in the 80s in a lot of different ways. Like the, even the fact that Letterman and Chris Elliott did you know, a little short film for it. It just felt like everybody who mattered in comedy in 1986 was part of Comic Relief. And at that point, that was, to me, between Tyson and Comic Relief, those were the two things that you kind of had to have HBO at that point if you cared about this stuff, right? Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that you start to see with Comic Relief and with Tyson is that people who normally wouldn't even be thinking about Pay, pay subscription. They're they're just driven to it because it becomes it becomes essential. I mean, like Comic Relief was a big deal, and yep. um, the cast. I mean, the people that they were obviously they had Whoopi, Robin, and Billy hosting, but the comedians that they were able to attract and the attention that it got, uh, you know, was was amazing. And uh, I mean, look, at some point, more than half of the subscribers of HBO in certain years in the eighties were subscribing because of boxing. And that's something that the networks used to have. It's yeah. just that the problem was the networks gave up on boxing. They moved it to the afternoon. And so Fuchs and Seth Abraham were able to come in and say, listen, we're gonna we're gonna move, we're gonna put on prime time. And that Don King was like, really? Okay, I'll take less money and I'll I'll put it in prime time. 
if you'll put it on prime time. And I think those were really smart moves on their part. Yeah, when I was growing up as a kid, ABC was in pole position with most of the boxing. CBS had a little, NBC had a little, but it was really ABC. And then they would replay the big pay-per-view fights on Wide World of Sports. And, you know, and that lasted really till I would say the early 80s until Cosell kind of turned on boxing at the same time the pay-per-views are about to come in in the mid-80s. And the HBO was like, hey, all right, cool. We'll take all this. The comedy thing, I, I can't tell you how many comedians I, I discovered on HBO and especially the Young Comedian special. Like that's where you saw people like Jim Carrey, Sam Kennison, Bill Maher. Um, you go on down the line, it was like basically every comedian, that that was where they were discovered. There in Letterman, I think were the two places. Carson was a little long in the tooth at that point. Right. But the thing with Dave, again, is you're going to get four and a half minutes and you're yep. not going to, I mean, like for somebody like, I mean, obviously for people who didn't see it on YouTube, I mean, when Sam Kennison's first appearance on Letterman is just legendary. It is just breathtaking. But the truth is that he could only do so much of what he really wanted to do on network yep. television. Then you get over to HBO and it's the wild, wild west. There's no guardrails. He's saying and doing everything. And that's what builds the fan base. The other thing I was able to show was that, I mean, I looked at the number of comedy clubs before HBO starts doing this in the United States. And there, there's like, you know, a dozen in the seven, like all of a sudden there's like hundreds and the proliferation of, of comedy clubs because people are seeing this. And, you know, these comedians then want to go on tours after they do their HBO special. So that had a huge impact on the culture. And inside the NFL, it was a show that was just unlike any other show on TV. And that's in there for a while at one point. The the boxing coverage just felt so much better than the network coverage. They really spent money all over the place on everything, even the way it looked. It just felt felt bigger. It was always Saturday nights. Um, and they also had time. I mean, yeah. they, could, they did this thing 24-7 where they followed the boxers before the fight, you know, for like a week. I mean... Is an earlier version of almost like hard knocks. And then you could be, you could have a big pregame, uh, pre-fight. And then afterwards, they didn't have to go to commercial. They didn't have to go late night programming. They stayed around. And so Jim Lampley's in there and, you know, other people, and they're talking about the fight. They have interviews. They, uh, they break down everything. So if you're a real fan of the sport, um, you're getting time and attention and analysis at HBO that you just couldn't get anyplace else. Yeah. And you spent more time on the sports than I was expecting in my head. And I thought it was all worth it because I do think their impact on sports fans the last 40 plus years is actually kind of a little bit underrated now. And I think people look at HBO now and they just think of like, you know, they think of real sports and something like that. And it's like, the, it, was, it was way more innovative, especially with, they were the only ones doing sports documentaries the way we're kind of used to now for I would say a good 15 years. I mean, they eventually became too formulaic, but they were way ahead of the curve on that. They were way ahead of the curve on coverage on those 24-7 type shows and hard knocks and kind of pushing the envelope the way they had Wimbledon. I'll never forget, all of a sudden, Wimbledon was on all the time. I remember watching that Boris Becker one. I think it was 86. And HBO just had it on all the time. I was like, this is great. I get to watch matches that just wouldn't normally be on TV. So way ahead of the game. Never. Wimbledon was never on during the week. In fact, I found out from a couple of producers that they were putting the tapes on of Wimbledon on the Concord to get him back right. as, as possible. That was amazing. I mean, you know, it's like they're spending money and they're they're spending a lot of time. They develop relationships with people like 
Billie Jean and Mary Carilla that leads into, you know, careers after they're, after they're uh, done playing. And uh, I thought it was really interesting. The problem is, as you just alluded to, though, that once they lose Wimbledon and once they're really starting to do original programming, then the money isn't there. And you have a series of executives who really aren't big sports fans. And yeah. it turns out to be... <laughs> that's it. Wait, that's an understatement. Well, but I, but I think it, people think that it's it's just well you know uh, whoever's running it they have to do sports and they have to do, it's like it really matters who's in, involved I, you know I remember the very first thing that Skipper did after he got the ESPN job was four hours later he got in a plane to try and steal the World Cup from NBC because he was a crazy soccer fan yeah uh, you know Michael Fuchs loved tennis but. Uh, Jeff Bukas wasn't a sports fan. Chris Albert wasn't a sports fan. Richard Plevler wasn't a fan. Bill Nelson. I mean, everybody who succeeded, they really weren't that kind of, you know, de- devotion to sports. Meanwhile, you also, if you're going to, if you can create another show like The Sopranos or try, I mean, it's impossible to create a show like The Sopranos, but create new or original programming, you'd rather do that than spend it on another fighter. Well, eventually they would have people in charge of HBO Sports who didn't follow sports. I you had a thing in there in the mid two thousands about oh. uh, the UFC and how yeah. close they came. And Dana White's basically saying, "Hey, we wanted this to happen. They would have turned it into the fifth professional sport, basically, and it fell through because there was nobody in the higher higher up, as you laid out in the book. There was nobody on the higher higher upside." who really wanted to champion it. And there was still, there was a little human well, cockfighting no, element at that point. I think what happened was, look, even though he wasn't a big sports fan, Chris Albrecht met with Ari Emanuel and with Dana and understood the power of it. He was going to give them their own kind of channel on Cinemax. So you'd have a UFC basic channel and he was all set to do it. And then he got fired. Yeah. So I think, and just play dominoes with that because as Ari says in the book, like, you know, that if HBO has UFC, then Endeavor doesn't buy UFC, and that changes a whole bunch of things. So you know. Well, how about was, how about the ESPN Plus piece of it? I mean, that's basically carrying ESPN Plus right now. The UFC part of it turned out to be a great deal. I think UFC has credibility probably five years faster than it ended up getting. Without, without a doubt. Without yeah, a doubt. it's a great what if, and it was at the right time where the boxing for a combination thing. They had a lot of competitors for boxing. Um, Showtime stepped in, took a couple good fighters, but there was also like, yeah, including Tyson, but there was also kind of a dead time in general for boxing. It didn't have the same stars that, you know, that we grew up with where there was always. I drilled down on on that Tyson Showtime thing because they had agreed to a contract and Don King and Mike Tyson get on the phone with Seth Abraham was running HBO sports at the time and said, we're, you know, this is great. We're so happy about the new contract. And then Tyson says on the phone to Seth, and I'm so glad I'm not going to have to deal with that, you know, uh, with that Larry Merchant guy anymore. And Seth goes, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, Don told me now in the new contract, we don't have to, you know, you're not going to have Larry Merchant anywhere near me. And Seth says, I know said <laughs> that's not part of the contract. And so all of a sudden, you know, uh, Don King and Mike Tyson go to DEFCON 1 and say we're not gonna we're not gonna go to HBO then if you insist on having Merchant there. And believe it or not, Seth really stands up for Larry Merchant. He says, "Right, I'm not gonna let you push me around." And they go to Michael Fuchs, and Michael Fuchs says, "Look, it's just like a director, like a star who says, I don't want this director.'" 
you know, I mean, just put him on something else. And, and Seth says, we can't be pushed around like this. And, and Fuchs defends Abraham. And then they lose. So they lose Tyson to Showtime. I mean, that's the big stakes. I think by the end of the 2000s, there was definitely an arrogance with that HBO sports ad that ended up backfiring against them in a couple of different ways. Because people were ta- people were stealing a lot of the ideas and kind of mindsets of things that they're doing. They're stealing some of their fighters. At ESPN, we ended up basically taking the documentary corner for them. And even as it was happening, they were super arrogant about it. I remember Ross Greenberg, who ran, ran them up until 2010 or 11, and he gave an interview and he, he just shat all over us. It was like, how dare anybody else make sports documentaries? This is, it's adorable that they're doing this, but we're the best and they'll never approach us. And we took their lunch, but it really stuck with me. I really, I really took that personally that he felt that they own the sports documentary currents. Like nobody owns this. They're documentaries. People have been making them for decades. What are you talking about? Right. But I think that, you know, they had done it to such a, such a degree. I mean, at least for a year and winning tons of awards because there wasn't much competition that I think, you know, Ross was, uh, I think, pretty confident, at least at that point, before he saw what 30 for 30 was going to be. And, you know, the quality that uh, you all were going to be doing and the volume. Uh, that's well, and how, modern, and how modern they were was the big one. That was our big advantage. They were doing Joe Lewis and they were doing Mickey Mantle and we were doing you know, Reggie Miller. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, you know, Skipper mentioned to me, that was actually part of your pitch for 3030. Yeah. Actually talk about the DNA of HBO Sports documentaries, not just to like talk about what we want to do with 30 for 30, but you said, this is, this is an incredible opportunity in terms of the marketplace because these guys, musically speaking, are doing, you know, variations on a theme. And yep. they're, you know, the whole look of them is kind of derivative of one another. Yeah, the initial memo that I wrote them was more a branding thing than anything. It was like we were making a bunch of different types of documentaries and the viewers couldn't tell which ones were good and which ones weren't. We were putting out a lot of them. It under was coming under different rubrics too, like ESPN films and this I mean yeah. on housing place. EOE. And we had just had the real thing with Third Thirty was we just did that twentieth anniversary thing that was like ESPN twenty. Right. Or ESPN 25, I'm sorry. Um, and that was in 2005 range. And they had like Gatorades attached to it and all these things. And people just hated it. And people thought they were getting hit over the head with it. They thought it was gratuitous and it made them mad. And it was right there in that time in the mid 2000s when people started to resent how much ESPN was in their life, right? Because we had the phone, we had ESPN the zone, we had the Gatorades, we had all these shows, we had all these catchphrases and there was this backlash. And part of the pitch for, for 30 for 30 was like, let's, let's zag against this. Let's do really good stuff. We'll brand it a certain way. We'll do 30 stories from our 30 years. And initially it was four filmmakers and then we'll make the rest ourselves. And then Connor had the idea of what we could actually make these with all 30. But it was trying to zag against what people thought our brand was, but then more importantly, what they thought HBO's brand was, which was big, grandiose, Liev Schreiber narrating and everything's 30, 40 years ago. So we initially, the initial list was like Doc and Daryl and, you know, Reggie Miller and things in the Fab Five and things that had happened in the last 15 years, we were really 15, 20 years. So that, that's what worked, I think, for, for our benefit versus where they were thinking. And yeah. they, they kind of didn't know how to react to it. And if anything, they kind of stopped making them by like 2013, right? 
Well, I mean, look, Ross leaves, and there's also this question of dwindling resources. And, you know, they they had to make cuts, and you have new leadership that isn't committed to storytelling the way that Ross was. And, you know, you start to see like a, a period of that entire decade where it's instead of it's, it's about growth, it's all about shrinking. Right. Protecting your protecting the lead you already have, which is we talked about this with ESPN. When it when you're not innovating, when you're just trying to protect what you have, that's usually when these big companies, I think, get in trouble. And you could feel it. I thought in the book, the most interesting part to me from a big picture content standpoint was where they were in 05, 06, 07, where you have Chris Albrecht, who you laid out all the reasons why he had to go. But um, you had this turmoil at the top. You had a lot of people trying to now take pieces of their turf, all these different networks. You had AMC coming now. AMC has Mad Men. You have FX coming. You have Showtime's in the mix. And people are grabbing the turf. And HBO's instinct for at least a few years there, which I hadn't really realized until you pieced it all together, was let's just spend more money on famous people. And like vinyl is like the perfect example of that, right? It's like, here, here, here's a ton of money to all of these famous people. Maybe that will solve this. And I think the best thing Casey's done, which you also had in that book, was like he went back to what the basics of HBO were. Go to creators, make stars, bring people on shows that become stars. One of the one of the first things he does with succession is he says, you know, to Adam and to his team, look, we don't need stars. This is a great show. This is a great script. We believe in Jesse and his team. And we don't need to do stars to, you know, make this make this work. And I think that that, you know, that certainly was a page from the past. And I think it was important. Um, look, sometimes those big names, even HBO turn its back on that. I mean, I'd go, Lisa Kudrow and Laura Dern both talked to me about the comeback and Enlightened shows that they both gave incredible performances and won awards and everything else. And HBO then decided, forget it. It wasn't enough. I mean, part of, one of the things that HBO did really well was they said, we're not going to pay attention to ratings and we care about, you know, awards and we care about criticism. I mean, The Wire was never a ratings uh, juggernaut and they they you know stayed close to that and then all of a sudden they started to change the formula and that became really problematic and really pissed off a lot of the community because the community had always thought that HBO was talent friendly this episode is brought to you by Nissan SUV it's good to stay up to date I mean we've seen this in basketball we've seen it in football we've seen it in baseball once the stats started taking off in the 2000s, everybody had to figure that out. Then I remember in basketball, first it was three-pointers, then it was defensive stats. You just got to keep moving. You got to keep evolving. You got to keep going. Now it's pace and threes. What's it going to be next, big guys? That's why the 2024 Nissan Rogue has Google built right into its 12.3-inch touchscreen infotainment system. With Google Maps, Assistant, and more, you can stay up to date on everything that's ahead without even needing to connect your phone. Find your next adventure with the Nissan SUV. Learn more about the Rogue, Pathfinder, and Armada SUVs at NissanUSA.com. One of the fun things about reading this book, not everybody's going to like every show you have in here, right? Like I wasn't an enlightened person, so I'm like skimming that part. But then you get to like Sanders and I'm like carefully reading every single letter of the 11 pages. And, you know, the Sex and the City stuff 
Um, there's there's really good behind the scenes stuff on each thing. The Sex in the City stuff, I don't I knew they didn't get along, but I didn't think I was fully aware of how dysfunctional it was. And it makes sense that Kim Cattrall isn't even in the remake that's coming out next month because of how bad it was. But I think that, you know, the thing that was interesting for me was just how great a job, and you'll appreciate this, how great a job HBO did in managing all this because it was always an iceberg, right? Yeah. I mean, you look at all those, all the publicity that Sex and the City got and all the incredible, the articles with all four of their faces and all, you know, all the harmony and stuff. And little did anybody really understand. I mean, I did that with Gandolfini because they kept a lot of that quiet. And so I didn't know any of that stuff. I knew he had some issues, but man, you really was that were they hiding that stuff? What was going on? Why wasn't more of that out? Of course. I mean, listen, when I asked a couple of people about the Golden Globes in 2005, they were like, how did I mean, they were they were stunned. And uh, and also about Gandolfini's intervention. Uh, They were David Chase. When I mean, I was sitting right next to him when I asked him about that. That was. it was pretty intense. They did not, you know, I'm not trying to pat myself on the shoulder, but they had done such a great job of keeping it under wraps that, um, you know, they were really not prepared to to talk about it. Uh, but I thought the Golden Globes thing was amazing in part because, you know, he's ready to present and he's in no condition to present. And uh, Michael Imperioli has to fill in for him. Well, and then the fact that the contract hold out when they use his love of the cast against him. And they're basically, all right, we're shutting down the whole show. And then he's costing everybody money and they quickly figured that out. But yeah, it's a complicated guy who unquestionably got too involved in that character for better and worse. Became the greatest TV character in HBO history. Without a doubt. One of the greats ever created in any TV medium. And yet it seemed like it wasn't helping him personally at all. Well, the problem is, and the thing that I wanted to really report on, which I think is important for context, is that look, he had had some demons before he even got cast in that role, right? He started talking about when he was in 17 or 18, some of the problems that he had. So as a result, playing Tony Soprano was, he had to tap into aspects of himself that he had been trying to bury over the past several years, you know? And so, you know, he said to somebody, "Uh, you don't know what this role is doing to me. And he would say things like, you know, after a day, I, I feel like I have to take a shower you know, to, to, to rinse Tony off of me because it was it was just matching up with some really dark sides of who Jim Gandolfini was. And well, that was a problem. Out of all the shows you covered in this book, what was your favorite one to research and interview people about that you felt like there was the most material to mine that you felt like wasn't out there already? Because it felt like you you had a lot of Game of Thrones stuff too, but I felt like Game of Thrones was so exhaustively covered and I'm not positive there's been enough distance. So I felt like I knew a bunch of that stuff, but like the Soprano stuff and the Sex in the, the City stuff, stuff with more the, distance, it just felt like... The, did you know the stuff about the ending of Game of Thrones? Because I talk about a pivotal meeting that... I didn't know, know that. No, that was, that was new info. I mean, that to me was the biggest... Look, HBO for years and years, decades, they say to the Hollywood community, come on over, right? We're going to give creators... Tons of tons of autonomy, and so they do. And I, you know, I mentioned that Larry Sanders has a twenty-minute episode. Gary Shanley wants to take a year off. Um, Oz, they let Tom Fontana do all these crazy things. Well, how about Curb? Right now, is forty-minute episodes for reasons right. that remain unclear. 
I mean, all these things. So that's all good, except that when Dan and David, when Weiss and Benioff just are talking about the architecture for the end of Game of Thrones, they go, I, I talk about this meeting in Mike Lombardo's office where they say, listen, we're only going to do eight episodes for uh, the penultimate season. And the last season's only going to be six episodes. And then they say, and we might finish it up with two movies. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that was, that, you know, Lombardo was in a state of shock. Puppet was in a state of shock. They tried to convince them otherwise. They were able to talk them out of the movies. But one of the things that, you know, I write about is that this formula came back to really haunt them because obviously they wanted Game of Thrones to go longer. And obviously a big part of the fan base was disappointed that the ending of Game of Thrones was so truncated. Yeah. Um, you know, that became, but they, they, had, they had no tools in their toolbox to deal with it because they had, they had already given that power over. Well, you did a good job of laying out how exhausting it was to film that show. Cause that was always, I, I got to know uh, one of the guys a little bit and I never realized like how debilitating that was from a family situation where you're basically Northern Ireland and Iceland and all these places for months and months on end and terrible weather and long shoots. And it, it really seems like those guys got burned out. And I, I think it was the right move not to pass that show on. They were able to do it in Veep, which you covered as well. And I think Veep, it's a little easier to do with half hour comedies maybe. And sometimes it could energize your show. I don't know how you do that with Game of Thrones. No. And one of the things about Game of Thrones, again, sometimes these are names that people don't even know, but like there's this extraordinary woman named Bernie Caulfield, who was, you know, uh, an essential part of making all of it work. Sometimes they're shooting in four different countries. I mean, she wasn't there for the first season. Things were very difficult. Dan and David bring her on and just to kind of like literally deconstruct what somebody does in that job and how important it is and all the different departments that were involved. I thought it was great. You know, with Veep, I'm not so sure, Bill, if if they didn't, if David Mandel doesn't come along, I'm not so sure that Veep continues because they had gone through like so many, so many names and it was a very particular thing. Yeah. voice and you know, the, the chemistry with Julie was so delicate. I mean, thank God David did do it. And he, you know, he, he kind of had a slow start, he said, but he, he really recovered well. And, uh, you know, Veep is arguably one of the greatest comedies HBO has ever done. When was this place functional, in your opinion? Because you do a good job of laying out all these different eras where very rarely did it seem completely functional at the top where everybody's kind of swimming the same way in the ocean. It seems like maybe the early 2000s when Chris Albrecht is kind of at the peak of his powers and Carolyn Strauss comes in and she's handling shows and Sheila's doing the documentaries and sports yeah, is in I good shape. Go back, is that the most functional? I would go back to like 97, which, I mean, Carolyn had been there, you know, since the mid 80s. Um, but I think that the key is the relationship between Bucus, who's running who's the CEO of HBO until 2000. Jeff Bucus, yep. Jeff Bucus. And that relationship is very important. And I think that Bucus to Albrecht to Strauss, that's when you see, in a short period of time, Sex and the City, Sopranos, Curb Your Enthusiasm. under. I mean, it's like, it's crazy. And it's great. I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't that harmony when Michael Fuchs was running it, the CEO, because... He fancied himself, and in some ways, he had unbelievable programming instincts. But there was a synapse between him and Chris Albrecht and 
Bridget Potter was running programming. So I think that probably from you know, 97 to 2002, 2003, even when Chris is come CEO, I think that's, that's, that's your sweet spot right there. Everybody's on the same page. And by the way, everybody in Hollywood knew who, you know, you go to. I mean, several years later, you have, you know, Plepler, you have Mike Lombardo, you have Sue Nagel, you have Michael Ellenberg, people without backgrounds in programming. And it wasn't clear who was making the decision. Yeah. So there was a lot of confusion. I think that that, that was, that was tough for people. Yeah. I think you go back to the late nineties cause the, the documentaries are really crushing it at that point. Paradise Lost, I still think from when it popped out, what it meant and how revolutionary it was, I think is one of like the four or five most important documentaries ever. We, we, I had multiple friends where we, we would just get on the phone and just talk about like Paradise Lost for 20 minutes. Just like, holy shit. What do you think? Who did it? Was what really one of the first true crime ones? They also had. They didn't did really. Co- they waited eighteen years. I remember. I mean, what kind of commitment is that? I mean, you got that, and you got Andrew Jarecki with the Jinx that literally, I mean, goes to murder trials today. I mean, you have Spike with, uh, you know, New Orleans after Katrina, big, big, big events, and then of course, you know, other documentaries. They're winning Academy Awards. They're winning. I mean, on every cylinder, they're firing, you know, incredibly well. Yeah, but you, so you missed a couple things. If I had been your conciliary, I would have been like, where's this, where's this? The autopsy show. Where was my 10 pages on the autopsy show? I felt like that created CSI and the whole autopsy world. There was no other show like that for 10 years. I was in the 1300 page version and <laughs> broke my heart. Uh, it broke my heart, but. What an unbelievable show that was. It, it's, it, I mean, that these are entire channels now. That, that was basically the autopsy show was the only person on that corner. So yeah. that one, um, Dennis Miller. Well, which, Dennis, look, I'll be the first to admit, Dennis was great to me for Saturday Night Live and ESPN. Um, he, his departure with HBO left a really bad taste in his mouth. I thought the Dennis Miller show was very important to HBO. Me uh, too. And, uh, you know, he just, he didn't want to go there. I was told it wasn't personal. I was grateful for him for other interviews he's done with me. I'm going to try and get him for the paperback um, because I, I really think that it's a show that deserves more attention. The problem is that, like, you know, I just didn't want to be writing like five pages on it without... Right, without Dennis Miller in it. Yeah, I think that show still holds up the format. And I think what was really special about it and why I liked it so much was um, the guests would come on and they were comfortable in a different way than you would see on like the late night shows. There was, I don't know whether it was cable or... I, they just kind of came into his world. And I, I felt like a lot of the DNA of that show ended up in the Chris Rock show because he was able to emulate it with the guests that he had on. The and same kind of like, that. same kind of vibe. Absolutely. Big influence on it. And look, it breaks my heart that sometimes when I'm like talking at a college and I talk about the Dems Miller or the Chris Rock show and somebody's like, Chris Rock had a show? It's like, oh my gosh, some of those sketches, some of those, some of that material was unbelievable. It was, it was, it was, you know, they're doing this John Madden documentary, Fox. They showed, they were showing a, either a commercial or like a sneak preview of it or whatever. And I was watching with my son and my son looked at me and he goes, John Madden was an announcer. He had no idea. 
It yeah. just makes you think like, oh my God, no, wait, people under 25, like you, you take for granted things they might know, but you just never know what this stuff. It seems, so I know you get this when you do your books where people go, oh, you were, you were really pro that person. You were really anti that person. Oh, you could see you're in the corner. But as you pointed out, like with the ESPN book and other ones, like it's kind of the eye of the beholder how people see it, how they read it, maybe what backstory they bring into it. I did think Chris Albrecht um, came off really well in the book, for lack of a better phrase, because I think his he seemed like the person who was the first one who realized we have to back talent and our job is to put talent in position and trust the talent that we're hiring, put them in position to succeed and bet on the talent to figure it out. Is that fair to say he, I don't want to say invented he, it, but perfected it? I, I think I think Fuchs felt that way. He was running around, you know, whether it was Bed Midler or I mean, look, Fuchs is the one who bought Gary Shandling, the pitch from Brad Gary, and gave them like mm. an astounding commitment. I mean, Judge Judge Apatow said nobody was giving away commitments like that. Yeah, you know, Fuchs really loved his relationship with talent. He was very very close with all of them, with Billy. With I mean, he went to Moscow with Billy Crystal for that special. Uh, he was. He was he was definitely foreshadowing that kind of relationship. The thing with that Chris did though was, it just was a much bigger canvas, and so he carried that through to a a much bigger, bigger level. And so he gets bounced. He gets in an altercation after a fight in two thousand six. Seven. If in two thousand seven, if uh, if that doesn't happen, how how much longer is he in charge of HBO? Did you feel like things were starting to change anyway? No, I think he would have been there for a while. We certainly would have had, I think we would have had the UFC. I think um, there would have been, uh, I'm not so sure that he would have, it's a question of how long he would have wanted to do it because I think Chris became CEO, not because he wanted to be CEO, but because he didn't want to be working for someone else. Yeah, He still wanted to be the creative guy. So I think, you know, probably maybe another couple of years. Um, and then he would have said, you know, then he would have said no, but their Chris's departure left uh, no disrespect against Carolyn Strauss because she just wasn't empowered after he left the way she had been empowered while he was CEO. And I think it led to, you know, a lot of, a lot of problems for HBO, particularly at a time. Remember, it's like bad food and small portions because Chris is leaving. And this is where all of a sudden you start to get Netflix involved and other competitors in in serious ways. So they're sitting around saying, oh yeah, you know, this House of Cards things. Yeah, I think we'll do a pilot on that. And meanwhile, Netflix is telling David Fincher, well, we're going to give you two full years. Seriously, commitment of two seasons. How can you compete with that? So it was a really difficult time for HBO to kind of, you know, lose its footing. It was a little similar to where ESPN was, I think, in the mid 2000s where there was all of a sudden a lot of executives near at the top and you had a big bullseye on your back and Chris leaves Carolyn Strauss who I think everybody seems to agree is one of the best people you know with story and with talent and problem solving and giving notes that probably there's been at the same time she's pretty weird like and, and the last couple of years I had a meeting there once like she was there was definitely a vibe that was little off. Like she was really eccentric. And I think that, I think that became the word on the street in LA of like, she's, she's kind of out there. Okay. But let me just say this because that kind of, 
you know, the people who were saying that at the time, I mean, she had been there since the mid eighties and yeah. she, she's, you know, she's very reticent to give her own opinion sometimes. And that's happening in the 1990s when people are pitching her shows and it's happening in the early 2000s. And sometimes she keeps people waiting in the waiting room for 10 or 15 minutes. She was 10 or 15 minutes. It was like 40 to 75 minutes. She did that in the 1990s. The difference is in the 1990s, HBO is like this proverbial, you know, little engine that could. It doesn't have these hot shit shows on the air. And nobody thinks that she's, you know, um, you know, this big egomaniacal power broker. She's the same person four years later. But if you keep somebody waiting in the waiting room after Sex in the City, The Sopranos, Kirby Enthusiasm, Six Feet Under, all of a sudden it's like, mm. oh, you think, you think you're a big shot now, huh? Well, we're going to put a target on your back. I think it was incredibly unfair. I think there's huge elements of misogyny involved. And she was always... I mean, look, she's really, really smart. I mean, we can, you know, of course, you know, she went to Harvard. She had, she's very, very uh, diligent about her work. She's the same person. It's just that the circumstances changed. Don't you feel like people were feeling like HBO was getting a little too big for their britches though, late 2000s? I mean, you had some of that in their book, in the book, some of the things that they were green lighting. Um, oh, yes, absolutely. There, there was a lack of like, central something. Now they shift the other way a little too much because then when Pueblo and Lombardo take over, they're trying to overcorrect for stuff of that. And meanwhile, they're as dysfunctional in their own ways. It's just less overt. Right. I mean, look, you know, vinyl is a great example of that. Um, the development of Westworld is a great example of that. Um, what happened with, you know, uh, the corrections and, uh, you know, the Brad Pitt, uh, you know, project that they had that they spent nearly $25 million on. I mean, look, nobody bats a thousand, but there are a lot of miscues. And, you know, once again, it's happening while the other places are not only developing their own stuff, but remember, uh, House of Cards and uh, Breaking Bad and Mad Men all come to HBO first. Now, one of the things I try and do in the book is isolate deconstruct the exigencies involved in each one of those. Cause the reasons for HBO not doing it is different for all three. It's yeah. not, you know, in fact, Carolyn loves breaking bad, but there were some other circumstances involved. But the truth is that they're, <laughs> they're also getting beat by shows that they could have controlled. Right. Well, the Met, you lit, did a good job at the Mad Men thing laying out. It actually made no sense for them to pick that show up because it would have hurt the Sopranos. Because Matthew Weiner was one of one of the right the right hand guys of David Chase, and you're hurting your own show if you pick it up. But, but try telling that to the headline writer at one of the trades. It says, you know, HBO passes on Mad Men, which of course you know makes AMC into another big competitor, wins tons of Emmy awards, and you know, uh, I think it, it was it was very difficult for HBO during that time, and especially after the run that they had. The crazy thing about Carolyn Strauss, she leaves, she gets bounced and yet still has this massive impact on the network because they they do the thing where they're like, oh no, they're going to produce some stuff for us and blah, blah, blah. And that usually never works, right? You never see the person again. She's in Game of Thrones with like with an important role on Game of Thrones the entire time it's on the air. That has to be the one recorded case ever that's happened. I mean, not only that, but she was a champion for for Game of Thrones. I mean, the yeah. idea that the quote-unquote cupboard was bare. 
I mean, makes me car sick because, I mean, there were a bunch of things in there, including Game of Thrones. And there's no way that, I mean, Carolyn, what she does with Chernobyl is incredibly important. Mm. You know, Craig Mazin, I purposely talked to Craig about Carolyn's contributions to that. So this is, we're talking about one of the great, like, quote unquote, producing deals after you've left the executive ranks that, that actually winds up benefiting the network and uh, in myriad ways. And so, uh, well, and she also had a dramatic impact on Casey, who ends up being the caretaker of this brand as they've rehabilitated itself from a content standpoint. They're on one of the best runs. Casey. I mean, yeah, Casey got there in two thousand and four. I mean, she was at the you know top of her game, and you know he said to me, he still remembers things that you know she taught him. So I feel like she is. You know, again, you know, somebody could say, well, I never heard of these people or whatever. But I feel like Carolyn Strauss is, you know, one of the best exhibits in the book to really for readers to understand what happens behind the curtain and how one person can have such an amazing impact on an organization. Well, it's a little similar to Skipper at ESPN, right? Amazing impact. And maybe you throw away the last two years. Like just from from a performance standpoint. Maybe the last couple of years weren't great. But yeah, couldn't read. <laughs> <laughs> but oh Carolyn Strauss, unbelievable run. Last two years, eh. And got, she got, you know, got a little eccentric. But I think the, the second life with the Game of Thrones was uh, was phenomenal. All right, so I'm going to tell you this. So 2015, I'm leaving ESPN, trying to figure out what to do. And one of the people I'm talking to is HBO. And one of the things I'm hearing from everybody is this place is the best they know how to treat talent, which by the way, both things true. Um, you won't have any of the dysfunction that you had at ESPN at this place. This place, everyone's on the same page, impeccably run. Um, they know how to treat talent. So I come to read your book and it's just as dysfunctional as ESPN. Lombardo and Pupper are the two people I met with to talk about doing a show. And as you lay out in the book, they have five years of they're playing, they're in this crazy high stakes chess game with each other. I had no idea. I just thought they were these two but, nice but guys who work together. But let's be honest, the big difference between ESPN and HBO for you, Bill, is that at ESPN, you had an army of Bristol lifers who like could not understand given your success in every other areas. Like they would say to me, well, why does this guy want to be on camera? We don't really like him on camera. We don't want him to be on camera. Why is he insisting? And of course, he's got Skipper's ear, so he's going to get himself on camera. At HBO, I believe that when you go over there and you're developing your show, there is a genuine interest and there's genuine enthusiasm. Now, you're very open in the book, and I appreciated it because you you went through some of the things that happened and what's going on in your mind in terms of like rushing things and some of the calculations that you made. I mean, you really do break it down in a very strategic way. But I think that that is a big, big difference. You were supported by people at HBO in a way that you just didn't have that support at ESPN in, uh, in terms of your own identity and your own ability to bring a show to air. I think it's funny that they thought I wanted to be on camera at ESPN when I would always turn down chances to be on camera. I don't know where that one came from. There was years that, and years of me never wanting to go on any shows. I think that the, the NBA pregame show, the whole the shoulder programming around NBA, um, I think, look, the truth is that you liked it and you wanted it to be better. And you talked to them about ways in which could be better. And that's that's what, I mean, they don't- Well, that was it. my mistake, yeah. 
it's not, it's, you know, who you are, but the point is they didn't want to hear it and they held it against you. <laughs> no question. No, I was saying with the HBO piece of it, I had no idea that the Pepper Lombardo relationship, I knew nothing. I'm walking into a blank slate. I had no idea it was as complicated as it was. From the outside, it didn't seem like it. And I saw Lombardo the day before he got fired, which was on a Friday. And he was in my office on Thursday because we were planning the show. And it was like we were launching the show like four weeks after he got fired. And he was in the office and he seemed fine and didn't mention anything. And then the next day, all of a sudden, he was out. And it was the classic Friday late afternoon news dump, right? Where credit right. to Richard and to Mike both that they were able to function in a way that you didn't even. I mean, look, there was. That's why I say it's a, it's an iceberg, and it was yeah. fun for me to dive below the surface and you know report on all the stuff that was going on. But I will say at ESPN, it was a it was much more out in the open. I mean, yeah, it's true. Cats and dogs living together, and. There were all of us who loved tweeting about it and reporting on it and gossiping about it week after week. It wasn't like that at HBO. Yeah. They really, they, they really shoved that toothpaste back in the tube at the end of the day. I really like both of them and continue to like both of them. And, but yeah. I also understand why at some point it wasn't a tenable relationship with the two. Where at uh, some I mean, point... I mean, look, I think what I tried to do was I tried to say that they really weren't they didn't have a great game plan going in because they weren't clear with what their respective duties were going to be and what their and how they were going to divide things up. I mean, Lombardo thought it was going to be a partnership. I mean, that's probably the last word that Richard Blepler would have used in characterizing what was going to be going on um, with with Mike. Well, you laid that out in the book. You said they had a meeting where they had a chance to carve out the territory. Was it like 2010? And they didn't carve out the territory correctly. And that was it for the next five years. They're stumbling and stammering and stepping on each other. Yeah. And then of course the, the, the bigger irony is that Richard and Mike get rid of Carolyn and bring in Sue Nagel. And that didn't turn out to be that great for everyone. And that was, she's an agent. Right. Lombardo was from business affairs. Plepler was from corporate communications. By the way, who else? Let's talk about Richard Plepler for a second. Aside from Peter Chernin, there has been no one. Plepler gets at a company in 92. He's Fuchs's like right-hand man in terms of like image and PR. And then he broadens his scope into branding of HBO. But who else goes from comms to the CEO? It is, I mean, one of the things that I try to do in the book was show the various inflection points that enabled Richard Plepler. I mean, he's not a distribution guy. He's not a technology guy. He's not a script guy. He's not, I mean, he's not a documentary guy. He's not, but what he is, is he's the conductor of the orchestra. So instead of being like one, like great at one instrument, he just knows how to get up in front of a crowd and talk about the HBO brand and create this esprit de corps for people that, you know, carries him to the top. It's quite an amazing journey. I really liked him. He doesn't come off awesome in the book. I got to say, it's it's definitely, it's one of the, one of the rockier up and down uh, arcs I think the book has. He, the, he was so charismatic in that seat, right? And he really made you feel like HBO was the best and the biggest and the most important. And we have the best people. And he had, it was funny, John Oliver had that canvas thing because that was like Pupper's famous for that line, right? We just, you're an artist. We want you to paint. We're just the canvas. Like he said that to everybody, right. but he was always impeccably dressed. Um, really fun to be with. 
Tan. And yeah, and tan and handsome and just made you feel like, you know, he had a way of whoever he's sitting with, they felt like the most important people in the world. The one thing that happens with Plepper in the book is he's he makes a lot of personnel moves and he gets rid of, you know, a lot of people who had been there for quite some time. And, you know, like Sheila Nevins and Mike Lombardo and others, they they talk about it and they're upset about it. So it's not, you know, it's not shocking. I think the fact that Plepler always did most of it without any fingerprints was pretty amazing and yes. with who he is. And to Richard's, you know, Richard's own brand is that, I mean, I tried to engage him on some of this stuff. He wasn't going to get into a street fight with these people. And he wasn't going to like talk about, you know, the specific instances or the specific reasons why he did what he did or push back on people. And um, I think that, you know, when you decide to take the high road in a book like this, you know, some people may think, well, you're not talking for a certain reason. But um, I think that Plepler, you know, just remained consistent to who who he is and who he wants to be by by not engaging. I Believe me, I, I tried. Well, it seemed like a lot of people were more than happy to lob shots his way, too. But that's what happens when you're at a place for 30 years, you're in the big chair for a while, too. And then you're not there. I mean, if he if he was still at the company, I mean, it would have been crickets because unless for people who were who already left the company. But I think, you know, a lot of people talk about being intimidated by him or for he's got an amazing network of friends and influential people. And uh, you know, I think that there's uh there's no doubt that people were afraid to confront him. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe Spring. On the way, warmer temperatures, more time outside, more time away from your home. Do yourself a favor, make sure you're doing what you can to protect your place and get a Simply Safe home security system, comprehensive protection for your whole home, a great way to keep you and your loved ones safe. What if you're going out for Easter for six hours? You don't think the burglars are gonna figure that out? That y'all, y'all packed up your car at like 11.30 on Easter and you drove off somewhere? Yeah, all they need is an hour. I'm not the only one singing Simply Safe's praises. Simply Safe, named best home security system in 2024 by US News and World Report, recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. Protect your home today. I use Simply Safe and love it. My listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when they sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash BS. Don't wait. That is simplysafe.com slash BS. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. Picture this, stacks of sweet brown sugar bacon on delicious Arby's sandwiches you already love. Does that sound like a feast for your senses? Well, Arby's brown sugar bacon sandwiches are back for a limited time. Available in BLT roast beef and turkey sandwiches. Try Arby's brown sugar bacon sandwiches today. You can order the sandwiches online or on the Arby's app. You can tap the banner or you can visit this episode's page to learn more. Limited time offer at participating U.S. locations while supplies last. Couple more nitpicks. I just felt like Oz deserved like four more pages, maybe for the paperback. You know, I, there just was no show like Oz. It, I, it, I agree. I agree. I cut back on it. Um, you know, I should have given you the thirteen hundred page version because then you would have had less nitpicks. Yeah, uh, where's the thirteen hundred page version? Is that paperback? I'm trying to. Uh, well, there's going to be definitely a lot of new. I, I think there will be material, but but I think you know, look, at some point. It's incumbent. It's my responsibility to do some 
triage and to, you know, kind of look at where you hit diminishing marginal returns. Um, I, I would have loved to have, uh, you know, done more with Oz because it was so important and there were so many great stories. And uh, it was a terrifying show. Terrifying. Even terrifying. now, terrifying. I can't, almost can't believe it was on television. I mean, they just like, I basically, I think that they made a list of, like, think of everything that you've never seen on television that you think you can't do and that's going to scare the shit out of people. And it's like, okay, there's our next season. I mean, you know, woven with great characters, the great writing by Tom Fontana and the, and the group, I mean, Barry Levinson and whatever. But I think, you know, I, I could have done a whole, I could have done a whole book on Oz, Larry Sanders, The Wire, Soprano. I mean, all of these shows, I mean, Six Feet Under, literally, that I think is one of the best episode, finale episodes in the history of television. You know, I had like 10 pages on just that episode. Yeah. Like, and, you know, you just gotta, gotta somehow keep moving. And the book, probably most important, just legacy standpoint, Michael Fuchs, just because I didn't really know who that was and I had no idea that he was that important. Who is his ESPN doppelganger? Who is his ESPN guy? Have to be somebody from the 80s, right? I, I just... Is, I it, is it Bornstein? Probably, because the only, Bornstein's the only one that comes close because I got to tell you, Fuchs is totally fearless. He is great managing down and he is absolute disaster managing up he like confronts all of his bosses he takes on bob daly who's running warner brothers studio at the time i mean mm. that's that's formidable daly's one of the most at this time one of the most important uh you know figures in hollywood and he's fuchs is totally fearless so i i guess it's bornstein but um man oh man he he is just not afraid of anyone who's the mvp of the book for you uh, it's, it's 49 years. I'm not sure that there's, you know, I'm not sure that there's, it's, it's really hard. I think each, I think, look, Fuchs was indispensable to when he was there. Jeff Bukas is a silent killer without his financial engineering, uh, doing what he did, getting the money for Albrecht to get this original programming, moving to corporate, beating back Steve Case and Bob Pittman and all those, you know, AOL guys. And then, you know, somehow uh, returning a ton of money to shareholders. I mean, that's important. Um, Plepper in his way, Casey in his way, and of course, Carolyn Strauss. I, I, I just think that, you know, one of the things that happens, and this happens with the ESPN too, you need people to step up to the plate. You needed John Walsh, you know, to come and bring journalism to ESPN if it was going to be, you know, really, really serious and to recreate SportsCenter, to, to create a new era for SportsCenter. And, and the, the key is... I mean, only SNL is different because Lauren is there basically for, you know, except for five years, he's still the person who's doing it. Otherwise, you have these kind of like people that come on the scene, do dramatic things, elevate it, save it, rescue it, take it to another level. And, uh, and that's really important. It's funny. I felt like Carolyn Strauss was the John Walsh doppelganger a little bit. Yeah. Like one of the things when Casey said that thing about how Sometimes she'd only have one note, but it was the right note and it was a great note. That's what, that's what Walsh was like in the 2000s in a lot of ways, where he could be in a meeting for an hour and not say anything and then have one point and it was like one of the best points. And, be like, and oh. because they only do a few points, they bat a thousand. I mean, yeah. Carol doesn't need to be heard at a meeting. If she doesn't have anything to say, she's not going to talk and then people are going to think, wow, what a snob. Or she, I guess she doesn't have anything going on. But 
she does. She really does. And everyone who I spoke to in terms of like what it was like to work with her and give notes and every get notes and stuff. I mean, she really impeccable reputation. Um, who do you think is going to be the maddest? Is there, are there candidates? Well, you don't have to say, but there's going to be like three or four people who are going to be mad. It feels like, well, this is where I get come back to like this Rorschach test, these books, you yeah. know, like, I mean, somebody said, Oh my God, you know, so-and-so is going to hate this. And then all of a sudden the next, like an hour later, somebody says, boy, you really, you know, you really uh, put the same person on a pedestal. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, it's really hard to, to say, I, I never have an agenda for, I mean, I'm not into personal destruction and I, I definitely, definitely sat on a lot of stuff that I came up with because I didn't want to hurt people personally. I also, one of the things that I learned from ESPN sometimes was when I report, report salaries and uh, I, I, I didn't do that here. I mean, there were, there's a lot of money going on around here. Mm. People made a lot of money. And uh, it just felt very, I mean, people were really uncomfortable with it when I did in the past and I didn't do it here. I, there were lots of, lots of relationships going on. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a busy world there. Uh, and this 80s, is, 90s, yeah. Oh my gosh, even 2000s. And, and, right. Um, but... I wasn't about to do that. I didn't want to interfere with people's family. So I sat on a lot. Um, you did you know, some good in, you did some good inferring. There's yeah. as you've, as you've keep doing these oral histories, there's definitely a couple moments where you're like, Oh, you lay the breadcrumbs without actually making the cookies. Well, a few times, sometimes people can connect the dots in a way that, you know, I think is both responsible without me, you know, um, harming someone. But like somebody, I, somebody's one phone call at one point in this book and it's like, oh, some breadcrumbs are being dropped right now. Hmm. Wonder where was, this is going. Yeah. That was, a, that was, that was a big moment. Yeah. A lot of intrigue. So, I, the paperback, what's that, two years from now? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I got to make sure that because you have this whole discovery thing that God only knows how the fuck that's going to play out. And then as I was reading, the other thing I forgot to mention was the AOL Time Warner stuff, which was complicating it at the time and seemed nonsensical at the time. And even as you laid it out with 20 years of perspective, it still made no sense. It was well, like they're merging and AOL's already, the arrow's already pointing down. And they're like, cool, plow ahead. I, I did get Jerry Levin who's very kind. I interviewed him over 20 times to admit um, that they did a weekend's worth of due diligence. It seems like it. I, he like literally confirmed it, which I don't think he's done before. And you start to like scratch your head and you start to wonder, I mean, it only led to $180 billion of write-offs. So, uh, you know, you're talking about the worst merger in, you know, one of the worst mergers in U.S. history. And so for all those people who thought it would be really cool to survive that and then buy Netflix in 2005, it's, it's a little rough. Well, and they were also counting the subscriptions of the CDs they mailed people and they would sign up and then never use AOL. And there's like, there's a customer. It reminded me of when ESPN in the late 2000s, when they used to you would go on ESPN.com and the video player would automatically start. And then they would claim that as a view for whatever video it was. Like, we got 2 or, million videos or views or so-and-so. Yeah. Or Main Street. That was another one where it was, they were just counting these auto star views. It's like, those don't count. 
that's just somebody coming to ESPN.com. They don't know what's playing on the right thing. But yeah, so I, there was a lot of chicanery with AOL that unfortunately, that's crazy that that merger happened. I would, I know there's been a whole book about it, but I might have to read it, read it because it's confusing to me. Yeah, no, it had a huge, but I, one of the things that I tried to do was not only tried to show what it was at the time, but the incredible repercussions it had for Time Warner going forward. I mean, it's just, it's just brutal. Just well, we'll see. We'll see how this discovery thing goes. I hope they don't mess with Casey, who's on a hot streak. This is this is a four year run for him. They they just leave that guy alone. Just don't, don't go in his office. Keep yeah, away from I Casey. I mentioned that to Zaslav. Uh, you know, don't. Uh, I I don't think I don't think David's going to do that. And I think Casey's well positioned to continue to do what he did. Just a question of what kind of money, because AT and T, you know, there wasn't enough money to really do what they originally thought they were going to be able to do. And at one point, HBO has two different agendas for the future. One is if we get money, and two is if we don't get any more money. And that's a hard way to program a network. You know, you you had a little bit about this the two, when they were trying to uh, figure out how to go digital. And they there's HBO Go and HBO Now and all, all that stuff. And when we did the deal, and it was you had that in there about the Jon Stewart thing, how that deal fell apart. They didn't understand in the actual deals that they couldn't do digital stuff. The stuff had to run on HBO first. Right. And that was something we found out the hard way because part of when, with The Ringer, when they, HBO was involved with The Ringer and we we're going to do these Game of Thrones after shows right directly on the HBO digital service. And they realized with their deals, it was actually illegal for them to do that. So they had to run on HBO. So within five weeks ago, all of a sudden, the show that we were making a digital show all of a sudden had to be on actual HBO. We had to scramble and add these different things. But I I remember thinking that was weird. Like they, they were, you know, it was like these guys are running HBO and they don't even know what they can and can't do with the digital. And it was very similar to ESPN, how they were throwing this stuff together really fast because they knew they needed to be somewhere, but didn't have a plan. Right. But part of the problem is that the world was moving so fast. Yes. That, you know, you sign a contract and all of a sudden, you know, two months later, because of something that's happening in the marketplace, all of a sudden it's out of date. Or some piece of technology all of a sudden makes something, you know, you're able to do something with something because of technology that you didn't even understand. Right. So I think that's, you know, that's really important just in terms of context. The flip side of that was the early 2000s when they make the incredibly smart decision to just own their libraries and yeah. buy out the back end of all these shows thinking that it would be good for DVDs, not realizing that this would also give them an absolute war chest for whatever was coming to HBO Max. One of the weird things that happens with HBO, but also like you could say with ABC, CBS, and NBC is like NBC does Friends. And then why does Friends wind up on Netflix? Like HBO, you know, some of their shows winds up, they wind up on Apple or Amazon or something. You know, it's like, People are there's cash and there's deals, but then you realize you're you're sharing your IP and and it's hurting your brand because you you know you're able to conquer and you know the whole world with some of these hit shows, and then all of a sudden you know Netflix can show it. I mean, TV Everywhere, which is something that they try around 2010, was a big attempt to blot Netflix's impact. So yep. you you know and you know, it didn't work out. You you need a lot of cooperation. But at the same time, 
it, it gets it gets a little frustrating for you know the networks to see their stuff being you know wind up someplace else. There was a money grab element to it because I've told you that story about thirty for thirty when we just sold them to Netflix and made extra money. Right. And it was like, cool, they're just paying us for stuff we already did. Great. But meanwhile, that's how Netflix is building their whole empire. It's like, yeah, cool, exactly. we'll take this, we'll take that. Here's some money. We'll take that. And then all of a sudden they have all of these things. Yep. You, you know, the good news is you get paid for it. The bad news is that you lose it. And it's really hard to make it part of your ecosystem once again. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's a it's a really troubling aspect for the networks, uh, you know, of, of what Netflix was able to do. The book is called Tinderbox. How many pages is the hardcover book? I think 964. 964? How heavy is it? It's light. But <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, it's like a small child. Well, but remember, you should have yeah, added legs to it. ESPN was close to 800 and that's just a sports network. You know, yeah. I mean, this is 49 years of sports, documentaries, movies, takeovers, original series. I mean, you know, it's like I have a lot of masters in this book. It's by far the biggest agenda. And again, I, I know I don't get any credit for cutting about 400 pages, but... Um, no, I, I think it was the right move. Yeah. Um, Sheila Nevins wins some award for the book. I don't know what, maybe liveliest quotes. But, but, but least give a fuck ability in the book. When Didn't care who she was just had a flamethrower out a couple of times. But, you know, I mean, look, when you're 82 and you've dedicated <laughs> so much of your life to a place, you know, she, she's fearless. And she, that's like your dream interview where somebody's just like, I don't give a fuck. Turn the recorder on. I'm going <laughs> ask yeah, me anything. And, uh, and she was terrific with me. And I sat there in her apartment with her many, many times. And, uh, I mean, what she does with Todd Black in the, uh, I mean, you know, um, it, it's, there are a lot of stories that Sheila tells that are just amazing because you're, you're listening to, you know, somebody who really just wants to speak her own opinion and her real truth. And, uh, you know, I, I, I always say that the real sign of power is for when somebody says, yeah, I don't need to talk on background. It's like that, that's, that's sheer power because you know that you either don't care or nobody's going to come after you because you're so powerful. And uh, in Sheila's case, I think she really didn't care. Unfortunately, that's how I was wired in 2009 when you interviewed me for the ESPN book. But that, that was foolishness. Hey, listen, look, can we just say that we've made some progress because I don't <laughs> think that after the HBO book, you're going to have to write any letters of apology. Oh my God. I had to write multiple. I had to call people. After the, yeah. After the ESPN book. I, I, mean, I think when we did the interview, though, I was at a particularly irascible time. I think some things, some things had gone wrong recently and I was definitely in fuck this place. So I'm probably leaving anyway mode. Well, it wasn't just one time. So I think whatever you're trying to say is your, was your state of mind. It was over a period of several months. Yeah, that probably that too. <laughs> If only, if only you had told me some stuff where you'd have to write letters of apology. But uh, God, you, know, I I even... you, were very, you were very honest about the show. And I think, you know, I, I, I really appreciated that. And I think, you know, in many I, ways, I don't even think my show should have been in the book. It was like the 120,000th most important HBO thing. Music Box, I think, has a chance to make the book, though. I could not believe some of that Atlantis footage. 
I'm, music box is good. I think we're going to get two pages in the paperback. I can feel it. It's good. The whole series is really good. I'm proud of it. Ready. Um, all right. Jim Miller. Great work as always. Congrats. I'm not going to ask you what your next project is. I know deep down you probably have one. I hope well, it's not ESP in the last 10 years. Thank you. Is, for, is it ESP in the last 10 years? You're not really doing that, are you? I, I'm sitting on 420 pages of notes. I'm just oh my God. To do that. But, um, but no, I like moving forward. Um, I, I think there could be a documentary in it. But uh, hmm. anyway, but uh, you know, it'd be interesting to turn the doc on to ESPN, <laughs> a place who's done so many docs. But, um, you know, I just got to make sure this one uh, gets read. So, okay. I, Tinderbox, I, you can read it. It's out Tuesday and uh, you can read it. You can get the, what do they call the ebooks? You can do an ebook, yeah. do a little Apple oh, yeah. book, you do a Kindle book, whatever. Anyway, yeah. you get a book, it's there. Uh, good to see you. Thank you so much, Bill. All right. This podcast was produced by Kyle Crate, and I have good news for you. Another podcast coming from me this week, doing some MBA tomorrow. Have a very special guest who has not been on this podcast for a while. So we're going to do that heading into the uh, the big four-day break. And then don't forget, new rewatchables coming on Thursday, a very famous sports movie. It's worth a Thanksgiving drop. Pump for that one. Uh, I will see you tomorrow on this feed. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at UGG.com.